With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. All right, welcome to a, another edition of Theology Matters. I'm your host, Devin Palou, and yes, we are coming to you here on on a Tuesday instead of Thursday, uh, but this is because we have a special debate edition of Theology Matters. We will be back this Thursday with another show. Uh, we'll be looking at the New Age, uh, but tonight we are going to be debating the topic uh, traditionalism versus conditional immortality. And joining us uh, to defend the position that hell is a place of conscious eternal torment for the wicked will be Nathaniel Taylor. He's a graduate of Biola University, uh, Westminster Theological Seminary, and also uh, Talbot School of Theology, where he got a degree in philosophy. Defending the position of hell as the annihilation of the wicked will be Chris Date, contributor at RethinkingHell.com and host of uh, the Theo... Apologetics with uh, podcast, and uh, he's actually been on the show before and has done a debate with uh, with Mike Willenborg. So uh, we are going to do that debate. Uh, let's see, Chris, are you there? I am here. I'm ready to go. All right, Nate, you're there. Yes, I'm here. Can you all hear me? Can hear you good. You can hear me okay, Chris. Yep. Yes, I can. All right, so because uh, because of the way that the, the thing is timed, we have to get going right away. So let me say up front, uh, if you have not liked us on Facebook, go to facebook.com slash theologymatterswiththepalooz, facebook.com slash theologymatterswiththepalooz. We've done several debates, including Protestants, uh, Roman Catholics, atheists. Nate uh, has been in a few of those debates. Chris has been in one. So uh, check us out on Facebook. With that being said, Nate, I am going to turn it over to you for, what is it, a 10-minute opening statement? Uh, I believe that's right, yep. All right. Uh, Mr. Short, and I, I would just ask you guys, uh, real quick, before you start the time, uh, if you guys have, you know, phones or stopwatch or something to where you guys can kind of be watching your time, uh, please do that. That way um, I don't have to, you know, interrupt you and all that, so. Right. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Devin. And uh, thank you, Chris, for your willingness to debate me. And I'd also like to thank my wife, Laura, for her support while preparing for this debate. Uh, this debate matters because what we believe about the nature of hell impacts how we view the work of Jesus, which I'll cover in a minute. But first, let us define some positions. The traditional view of hell, which I'm defending today, holds that any mere person who rejects the gospel, they will experience eternal conscious suffering by the wrath of God. In this view, torment is bodily and spiritual to unbelievers under the wrath of God experience suffering before and after they receive their resurrection bodies. Now, Chris's view of annihilationism, which holds that the punishment of hell is eternal death, eternal absence of conscious life, has established Chris's position, he will need to show 
that death is eternal unconsciousness, not only the body, but also the soul. So now that we have uh, clearly defined our positions, um, let us go to the reasons for the traditional view. My first reason for the traditional view is that it best explains the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. The substitutionary atonement is clearly taught in Galatians 3.13, which reads, Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. According to Daniel Wallace in Greek grammar beyond the basics, the Greek word who care that is in Galatians 3.13 that's translated or rendered for us indicates a substitutionary atonement. Thus, given the biblical data, we have no choice but to hold to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. To be clear, the substitutionary atonement teaches us that Jesus took the exact punishment that we deserve, but annihilationism can't explain this atonement for two reasons. One, Jesus dies only once in the atonement, whereas in annihilationism, unbelievers die twice. And two, annihilationism, Jesus dies and ceases to be conscious for a mere three days, far short of the eternal death required by annihilationism. Consider this implication that if annihilationism were true, Jesus' resurrection, our great hope, would entail a terrible conclusion that he did not fully atone for our sins, but only in part. So if annihilationism is true, then Jesus does not take our exact punishment. However, Galatians shows us that Jesus did in fact take our exact punishment, and so therefore annihilationism is false. I think most uh, will find this unacceptable, especially in light of the fact that traditionalism can make perfect sense of the atonement. The exact degree of wrath that we would have experienced in hell for all eternity is what Jesus takes on the cross, whereas we mere human persons can't bear our entire wrath at once, given the intense concentration of it. Jesus, as a divine person, was able to take the full concentration of the wrath we would experience in eternity in hell. Notice how the solution is not open to the annihilationist, because being dead or alive, being conscious or unconscious, are not degree properties. You are either conscious or not conscious. You are either dead or alive. There are no degrees to be had here. The punishment is degrees. You can receive more or less of it. And so Jesus can take the maximal degree of concentration of punishment in his time on the cross. Not only does traditionalism maintain the atonement, uh, but traditionalism is directly taught in other parts of the Bible. Revelation 14, 10 through 11 reads, He will drink the wrath of God, he will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured in full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. The phrase forever and ever in the Greek here is used ten of the times in the book of Revelation to describe how God exists forever and ever and how the saints reign forever and ever in heaven. Thus, forever and ever in the imagery means forever and ever and not a long time. The word torment in Revelation and the rest of the Bible is never a word that refers to destruction. In Revelation 9.5, those who are being tormented are said to be prevented from dying for five months. In Revelation 11.10, those being tormented are not being destroyed. And outside of the book of Revelation, we see the fire and the afterlife is connected to tormented and not destruction in Luke 16, 23-28 with the uh, rich man and Lazarus. And in Matthew 13, weeds are being burned and are interpreted by Matthew to mean conscious 
suffering. So in light of all this torment meaning, uh, in light of this, torment means torment in Revelation 14, 10 through 11. And again, in the book of Revelation, we read in Revelation 20, 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur with a beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The devil is an individual, and so it follows the beast and the false prophet are also individuals that are being tormented forever and ever. We have to be sexually consistent here, because the angel clearly interprets the beast in Revelation in Revelation 13, 18, to be an individual man. Now, many annihilationists take this oversimplistic approach of saying that Revelation isn't clear, so we shouldn't base our doctrine of hell on it. However, the book of Revelation does teach us things, I believe, very clearly. Revelation 20 teaches us that there will be a final apostasy, and that in the thousand years, which represents a long period of time, the second coming is a long way off. So rather than rejecting any doctrine which is only taught in Revelation, we should evaluate each on its own textual merits. But eternal conscious torment is taught outside the book of Revelation. Look in Matthew 25.30 and following. Matthew 25.30 reads, And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness, into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So if final punishment is experienced consciously, I don't think we would expect to find this characterization broadly of final punishment if Matthew weren't annihilationist. Later in Matthew 25, 41, we read, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire for the devil and his angels. Matthew is likely borrowing from 4th Matthew 12, 12, which is an early first century, century document, which reads, Because of this, justice has laid up for you intense, eternal fire. The same eternal fire is spoken of in Matthew 25, 41. Eternal fire and torture. And these who are at all time will never let you go. Here we see eternal fire is directly linked to eternal conscious punishment and suffering and torment. Lastly, every clear instance when fire is used to describe the afterlife in the New Testament, it refers to conscious torment. Consider what I said about uh, Luke 16 and Matthew 13 earlier. So if fire clearly points to torment, and this fire is forever, and it follows the wicked are being tormented and suffering forever. Matthew goes on to say, lastly, and these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Given that the preceding verses, which we just previously covered, present final punishment as conscious torment, we should be consistent in the context and interpret eternal conscious torment here as well as eternal punishment. Lastly, we know that the final and eternal punishment can't be dying again forever, because Hebrews 9.27 clearly says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, not twice, just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and that after that comes judgment. So the author of Hebrews uh, says that we only die once, but annihilationists say that we, at least in Christmas case, say that we die twice, once in this life and again in the life to come for final punishment forever and ever. We must let the clear scripture interpret the less clear scripture. And if we do this, then we will see that Matthew 25, 46 and the book of Revelation clearly teach eternal conscious suffering. Thank you.
Hello? Can you hear me? All right. Uh, sorry about that. I've had a little technical difficulties. Uh, you did oh, not take okay. a full 10 minutes, but, uh, but you're, I guess you're, you're good with that? Yeah. That, um, how much time did I have left? Like uh, about a minute and a half, two minutes. Ah, uh, that's fine. Yeah, Chris, go. All right. All right, Chris, you there? I am. All right, and uh, just one second. I'll tell you when you can go ahead and start your minute and go ahead and start now. Well, thank you so much to Devin for hosting this debate and to Nate for participating. I'd normally spend a little more time formally thanking people and introducing the topic, but I've got a lot of ground to cover and not a lot of time to cover it, so I'm just going to jump right in. As Nate and I engage in this particular debate over what the Bible says is the nature of hell and final punishment, it is critical that each of us does at least two things. First, he must assess the biblical consistency of the view his opponent actually holds and not what he thinks his opponent holds. Second, he must own up to and defend what his own position actually entails and not pretend that it doesn't. Having prepared my opening statement in advance, I did not know if Nate would do the former. For the most part, I think he did. But having had, but having had what I think were friendly, enjoyable conversations with Nate beforehand in which we discussed our respective views, I was fairly confident that he, like many traditionalists, would not do the latter. Now, what do, I mean, what do I mean by that? In what way are modern traditionalists unwilling to own up to what their view actually entails? Well, you see, like me, they affirm the doctrine of the future general resurrection of all the dead. And it is in this resurrected state that they believe the lost will suffer conscious punishment forever. Now, they're willing to use words like embodied to describe this eternal state, referring to the unity of spirit and raised, reconstituted body. But they're often not willing, as so many of their predecessors have historically been, to own up to the reality that the resurrection of the lost entails their living forever, at least biologically speaking. For example, Warren Wearsby writes, even lost people are going to live forever in hell. Wayne Grudem says that they live forever in hell. Ian McNaughton writes the wicked will be alive in hell. On and on and on and on and on it goes. John Gill says that a risen wicked person's body dies not again. John MacArthur says that every human being ever born lives forever. Greg Kokel says that everybody lives forever. J.P. Moreland and Gary Habermas say that the risen lost will continue living in a state with a low quality of life. And, and I could go on. Now, why did and do all of these prominent traditionalists affirm what many other modern traditionalists, like Nate, I suspect, are not willing to? Well, the answer is plain and simple. Resurrection, by definition, entails a return to a state of biological life. This is the definition of the word resurrection offered not only by standard English dictionaries, but by biblical dictionaries like the Lexham Bible Dictionary, the Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, and the HarperCollins Bible Dictionary. This is how the Bible itself defines resurrection. Isaiah 26:19 says, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake. You see, we have bodies rising, awakening from sleep, returning from death to life. Similarly, in Daniel 12:2, it says that those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So again, it's both righteous and wicked who will rise, awaken, and live again. The dry bones of Ezekiel 37, the biblical picture of resurrection, whether to be taken literary, literally or not, are depicted as being reassembled, covered in muscles and skin, given God's animating breath, and they are said several times to once again live. So if someone like Nate believes that resurrected people will suffer in hell forever, then by definition he believes that they will live forever in hell, biologically speaking, whether he is willing to own up to it or not. That is the traditional view of hell. But you see, therein lies the rub. 
You see, although life and death can be used in more than one way in Scripture, it is in this biological sense of life, at minimum, in which Scripture indicates that only the resurrected saved will live forever. This is what we call conditional immortality. And it is in this biological sense of death, at minimum, which Scripture indicates that the resurrected lost will die forever. This is what we call annihilation. Let's look first at conditional immortality, my first argument. In Genesis 3, to 24 after pronouncing judgment upon Adam and Eve for their disobedience, then the Lord God said, lest man reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. And then God guarded the way of the tree of life from them. So lack of access to the tree of life ensured that they would not biologically live forever. And at the opposite end of the Bible, in the imagery of the closing chapters of the book of Revelation, only the saved have access to that tree of life, symbolism communicating that only they will live forever. Likewise, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 53, that the risen bodies of the saved will be made immortal, which in context refers at least to being incapable of biological death. And we know that this will not be a property of the bodies of the risen damned, because the stated purpose of this transformation is so that our bodies can inherit the kingdom of God. Now, consider verses you've heard a thousand times, but whose contrast between life and death you might have overlooked. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's John 3.16. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. That's John 10.28. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23. These passages take on a much clearer meaning as soon as you adopt this view. And on and on and on it goes. Now, so what we've seen is that only the risen saved will be made immortal, incapable of biological death. Naturally, then, the corollary is that the risen lost will biologically die, which is borne out by the biblical language of destruction, my second argument. Second Peter 3, 6 and 7 compares the future destruction of the ungodly to those who were biologically killed by Noah's flood. 2 Peter 2.6 and Jude 7 compare the future destruction of the ungodly to the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah who were biologically killed by eternal fire. Uh, specifically, Peter says that by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, God condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Interestingly, Jude calls the fire that destroyed those cities eternal fire, which Jesus said in Matthew 25, 41-46, is the eternal punishment awaiting the unsaved. Contrary to my friend Nate's co uh, contention, an eternity of ongoing punishing simply is not what's in view there. Rather, it's the punishment of death, an eternal, at minimum, biological death, from which they will never rise to life again. In Mark 9, 48, Jesus says that in hell their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, quoting Isaiah 66:24, in which it is those who have biologically died whose corpses are being consumed by fire and maggots. Unquenchable fire, like it's used in Ezekiel 20, 47-48, and Jeremiah 17:27, the name just two places, is fire which, being unstoppable, completely consumes. Undying worms, like the fearless scavengers of Jeremiah 7.33 and Deuteronomy 28.26, are consuming maggots which, being unstoppable, completely consume. The symbolism of Revelation 14.9-11, with its ever-rising smoke from torment, draws upon Genesis 19.24-28 and Isaiah 34.9-10, in which fire and sulfur biologically kill the inhabitants of cities from whose remains smoke rises forever. Symbolism that John uses again later, in chapters 18 and 19 to describe the fall of a city and the biological deaths of its inhabitants. In Revelation 20 and 21, John and God himself interpret the perplexing lake of fire imagery as symbolizing biological death. So the risen lost will biologically die. And this is really no surprise given what we know 
about the substitutionary atoning work of Christ, which is my third argument and the one that I'm perhaps most passionate about. You see, Nate and I are both Reformed, which means we claim we believe. We claim we believe that Jesus bore the punishment deserved by the redeemed in their stead and only in their stead, which means that the risen lost must bear their own punishment. But the Bible teaches that Christ's substitutionary atoning work consisted primarily in his biological death. Paul says, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, that this is of first importance. If the risen lost must bear their own punishment, then they must likewise biologically die. So Nate and the traditional view in which the risen lost biologically live forever in hell, even if they don't want to admit that's what it is, contradicts the biblical answer to the question of immortality, the biblical language of destruction, and the biblical nature of the atonement, all of which together teach that only the risen saved will biologically live forever and that the risen lost will biologically die. But one final question remains. If human beings have immaterial souls that survive the deaths of their bodies, what happens to those? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 10:28, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now here the Greek word translated destroy consistently means something like slay or kill in the synoptic gospels when used transitively and in the active voice to describe what one personal agent does to another. If humans are conscious in the intermediate state, it is because, as James 2.26 indicates, the soul remains alive when the body dies the first death. But here in Matthew 10.28, Jesus teaches that the soul will die in the second death along with the body. Now, for those of you listening, I understand that it can be a little jarring to consider the possibility that so many Christians have, since the time of Augustine, been wrong about hell. You see, prior to Augustine, my view is very common. It hasn't helped that 19th century Christians who believed my view were forced from, or left, their Orthodox Christian churches and joined movements from which the Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses later branched out, giving my view forever a bad name. Well, maybe for a few more decades. But if we're evangelicals, we've got to subject our traditions to Scripture which clearly and unequivocally teach that only the risen saved will live forever and that the risen lost will instead die forever. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Chris Bate. And uh, Nate, or, oh, Nate in here. Nate, you there, brother? Yes, I am. We're, we're doing cross-ex. Cross-examination. You are up first. Okay, okay. Uh, so, Chris, just by a point of clarification, you hold the soul sleep, right? I hold to a position that is often characterized as soul sleep, but for the sake of our audience, I'll point out that it's not a requisite belief for annihilationism. Okay. Do you hold uh, physicalism? Yes. Again, I want to point out it's not a requisite for annihilationism. All right, we'll, we'll get into that later. You cited a lot of verses which might seem to be teaching the destruction of the body of the wicked which would establish uh, annihilationism if physicalism and soul sleep are true. Um, do you have any verses that teach um, the soul uh, will not be conscious um, with the risen wicked? I'll answer that, but I'll just point out that since your view is one in which the risen bodies of the wicked live forever, the verses that I cited are actually relevant. But besides that, yes, I did. I pointed to Matthew 10, 28, in which, I, in which Jesus says that just as the body is killed in the first death, so too will the soul in the second. And since James 2, 26 indicates that, that when, the, when the spirit is separated from the body, the spirit is still alive, or, you know, it's the body that's dead, uh, we know that the reason that the soul lives on in the intermediate state is because it's still alive. But here in Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says it won't be in the second death. Okay, so then uh, if someone holds a dualism like me, although I do hold it on the left, we'll live forever. I agree with all the statements you cited, so I don't, I'm not going to argue anything strange. Um, so then uh, you cited a verse, uh, Matthew 10, uh, to establish annihilation if you're a dualist like me and most Christians, 
But um, do you uh, do you have any verses that would uh, show other than Matthew 10 that um, if you're a dualist like me, that uh, the soul will be destroyed? Well, I don't have anything besides Matthew 10:28 that explicitly refers to the soul being killed. However, if you'd like, I can point you to a number of passages in Old Testament and New Testament in which the complete end of the whole person is what's in view. Um, does, it, does it say the destruction of the soul in those verses? Well, again, I'll repeat myself. I don't have anything besides Matthew 10:28 that explicitly refers to the soul being killed, although that passage is, is conclusive. But what I do have are a number of passages, which if you'd like, I can point you to in Old Testament and New, which teach the complete, total end of the entire person in Old and New Testament. Right, but that assumes the falsity of dualism, doesn't it? Uh, no, I don't think so, because... Uh, in other words, the New Testament taught that we have an immaterial soul, and it just talks about the destruction of a person, you know, they're, they're being, you know, dashed to pieces. A dualist could still say that um, the immaterial soul lives on if their bodies are dashed to pieces. Um, what do you think of that? Well, it contradicts Jesus' words in Matthew 10:28, and it contradicts a myriad number of verses in Old and New Testament in which it indicates that the entire person... Again, not just the body, but the entire person will, will be gone, will have disappeared entirely. Which, which if I was not sure... I'll, 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 I'll move on. Okay. How many times did Jesus die? Jesus died one time. How many times did unbelievers die? They only die the death for which he paid uh, in the second death once. How many times did unbelievers die, though? They died twice. Okay. How do you reconcile this with Hebrews 9.27, which they only die once? I think a number of expositors will say the same thing I do, which is that it doesn't say, in fact, they have to say this because it's, it's undeniable, that it's not excluding a second death. I mean, the, the book of Revelation explicitly says there will be a second death, and you have to account for that whether you're a traditionalist or otherwise. And so what most expositors, I think, will point out is that, is that the author of Hebrews is not excluding the possibility of a second death, otherwise he'd be contradicting Scripture, and I'm assuming that you affirm the inerrancy of the book of Hebrews. I do. Rather... Yeah, rather, I think that what the author of Hebrews is saying is that, uh, is that judgment follows only one death. There's only one death, and then comes judgment, and then he's not commenting on what happens after that. In fact, quite the contrary, he says later in Hebrews, chapter 12, I believe it is, that the, that the enemies of God will be consumed by fire. Okay, um, do you, do you um, in Hebrews uh, 9.28, says, so Christ having been offered one, same Greek word, to bear the sins of many, uh, do you think that's possible that Christ could die twice in the age to come, given this, given uh, how this verse works? No, I think Jesus is will will have only died once throughout all eternity, and it will be the the death of Okay, but in other God. words, unbelievers do die twice, though, on your view, though. So that that's interesting. Okay. Um, well, I guess I'll, uh, yeah, um, I'll, I'll, we're going to move on. So Jesus took the punishment of hell by being dead and not conscious for three days, right? Uh, I haven't commented on whether or not a lack of consciousness was part of the atoning work. What I pointed out was that the scripture speaks primarily, or it says that his his atoning work consisted primarily in the death of his body. Yeah, I'm not interested in what you pointed out thus far. I'm asking you your views. Was Jesus conscious for, for, uh, conscious for three days? Uh, the answer to that question is, I think, yes. Okay. If Jesus died once, um, how could he take our place and take, and take, the, uh, our, take our place and take the punishment of the second death? Because he wasn't bearing the punishment of the first death. Oh, he wasn't? So he, he died once without a resurrection body, and he, he took the second death on your view. Absolutely. In my view, he, he was not paying the penalty that all human beings bear uh, in the first death. Because if he had, then you and I would never die. But we will die. Unless, you know, assuming the Lord carries, of course. In other words, if you... Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I apologize. Uh, on, on your view, are uh, unbelievers 
uh, eternally punished by being killed and not living forever? Uh, their eternal punishment consists in their everlasting death, yes. Did Jesus die forever? Uh, neither was he tormented forever, no. Um, no, you have to see that he died. He didn't, he didn't die forever, right? Well, that's, I just answered your question, yes. He did not okay, die okay. forever. Not his, neither was he tormented. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, so then, how could Jesus take our punishment in hell when he didn't die forever? Well, I think there are a number of possible answers to that. The one that I uh, am most comfortable, uh, and uh, the, the answer that I'm most comfortable giving, because it's the one I'm uh, most comfortable articulating, the one I'm most able to articulate, is, is really the exact same answer that traditionalists give. And I could give you, in, in, I can give you a host of examples of these. Uh, but basically, the, the, the traditionalist answer to that question, why wasn't Jesus tormented forever, is because as the divine, as the God-Man, as the Theanthropus. His finite duration of suffering qualified, in some sense, as the eternity of suffering awaiting those that would have otherwise awaited those for whom he died and, and which will, therefore, await those for whom he didn't die. Um, so my answer to the question is his finite duration of being dead qualifies, because he's the divine, you know, the, the God-man, the Theanthropus, as the eternity of death awaiting the risen lost. Um, can you have degrees of punishment if you don't exist? Uh, as a matter of fact, you can, because I think that the punishment of death is inflicted by uh, means that can vary in, uh, in uh, degree and intensity and uh, duration of suffering and so forth. And, and I'll just give you a real quick analogy to, to illustrate what I mean. Um, everybody I've spoken to, and you, and you might be the one exception that's possible, uh, will admit that if, 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 ask, if I ask them, um, what is the punishment inflicted by both the electric chair and lethal injection? Most of them will, uh, will, will typically, every one of them I've ever talked to will say death. But then I'll say, but isn't it true that the means by which that punishment is inflicted varies in degree of suffering? And all of them agree. And, and when I point that out, everyone that I've spoken to can see the difference in degree of punishment there, even though the punishment that's inflicted is death. Right, but the punishment included in hell is eternal absence of life or uh, conscious existence or conscious consciousness. So, um, uh, but okay, so I, okay, so what what is your view um, of uh, of hell? How would you define hell? Well, I mean, I like to try to be precise, and I'm not saying not. I'm just saying I like to be precise, and so uh, I think that the punishment that is that the New Testament and Old Testament refer to when they speak of the Valley of Hinnom or Gehenna, which is what we translate hell. Uh, eschatologically speaking, the punishment of hell, the, pun the final punishment awaiting the risen lost, is eternal death. Okay, um, so uh, Jesus was able to take that in, th in three days, correct? So you could theoretically take hell in, in three days. So you have about a minute and a half, I don't have to find answers, so I could not. What's that? Yeah. So, so, so the th theoretically, three, three days is, is, is equivalent, you know, to hell on your view with Christ. So, if Jesus took punishment of hell by dying for three days, why don't believers take the punishment of hell when they are dead for thousands of years, like St. Peter, for instance, you know, was, was crucified upside down, and he's been dead for 2,000 years. So, is that, is that hell for Peter, like he's dead for 2,000 years? No, I already gave you the answer to this question, that Jesus didn't bear the punishment of the first death on our behalf. If he had, we, would, uh, we wouldn't die, but of course we do. So, so, okay, let me get this straight. Jesus is dead and unconscious for three days. St. Peter is dead and unconscious for 2,000 years. Jesus suffered hell, Peter didn't. Can you pick out the difference there? Yeah, because Jesus bore the punishment of the second death. Right, and, and so Peter's not receiving hell, though, because, even though he's unconscious for 2,000 years. Is that your view, roughly? 
Well, he's not receiving anything. He's unconscious in my view. If, he's, if he is conscious, he's experiencing bliss and paradise, so he's not experiencing punishment either. Um, the, the punishment that Jesus bore on Peter's behalf and on yours and mine, assuming we agree that we're brothers, which I think we do, um, is the second death, not the first. Yeah, that'll be fine. Um, so, uh, Jesus, how much time do I have, Gavin? Ten seconds. Ten seconds. Okay, just, yeah, move him on to his go prospects. All right, Chris, you're up, brother. All right. Um, so, this was a little... I struggled with the format here. My understanding was that we had three 10-minute cross-examination periods that had to be kind of narrowly focused, which is difficult to do in, in 10 minutes. So what I've done is broken up my three cross-examination periods into the three planks of my argument, the first of which is uh, conditional immortality. Now, contrary to the previous conversations, or at least contrary to what seemed to be the case from our previous conversations, Nate, it seems as though now, if I understood you correctly, you are willing to say that the risen loss will live forever in hell. Isn't that right? Yes, I think Hebrews 9 fully teaches that. You, you die once, and then you live, you live forever and ever in the general resurrection. So, yeah, that is my view. Okay, so um, let's talk about Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 10, 28 to begin. Well, actually, let's, let's start with conditional immortality. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Yeah. In, uh, in Genesis chapter 3, when God excluded Adam and Eve, uh, banished them from the garden, uh, removing their access to the tree of life, it says that it was so that they would not live forever. Now, would you agree with most commentators that what it meant that they would not live forever is that their exclusion from the tree of life meant that they would not physically live forever? Um, yes, that, that they would not physically live forever in this life, yes. Oh, so that was excluded only to this life? That's right, because you die once according to Hebrews 9, and then come judgment. Okay. Um, in the book of Revelation then you're saying both the saved and the lost have access to the tree of life? Is that right? Am I understanding you correctly? No, uh, I don't take life the way you do. I take it as a, a quality of, ex of, of conscious existence, uh, glorifying God. I take it the way that John takes well, it. Um, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Five, which is please, please allow me to... from death to, death to life. So it's uh, spiritual life is a quality, um, and you're spiritually dead. So I, I, take, I take life uh, in, in, in uh, the tree to be reference to spiritual life in Revelation 22. Okay, let me go back to my previous question then. So, um, would you agree, uh, and you did already, I think, if I, if I understood you correctly, but I might not have, that when, yeah. when they were banished from, the tr from having access to the Tree of Life, it said that they, it was, that Genesis 3 says it was so they would not live forever, and you take that to mean, at least in part, that they would not physically live forever, correct? Uh, yes, in this life. That's right. That's what I said. Right. So, the Tree of Life, their exclusion from the Tree of Life prevented them from living forever. In this life? Uh, in this life, uh, yes. In, in, Rebel, uh, in uh, Genesis 3 um, or 2, it's a reference to not physically living in this life forever, given how God set things up. And then in Revelation 22, um, it spiritualized it for um, spiritual life, the, the tree of life. That's, that's my, roughly my take, because I take the second death okay. to be spiritual, since the beast and the false prophet, which is Nero and the uh, high priest, were thrown into second death. We know some other passages that teach the uh, judgment hold of the Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hey, 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 Nate. Um, let, let's try to, let me control the time during my time, okay? Um, so, uh, so I understand. So you're saying that the book of Revelation spiritualizes something and, and gives it a different meaning. That's fine. Um, it, yeah, okay. A lot of, a lot of literalists will, uh, will, will complain about that. I don't. Um, now let's okay, talk cool. about First Corinthians. Let's talk about First Corinthians 15. Um, I debated somebody on the show previously, Michael Willenborg. And he was willing to acknowledge what I think is pretty apparent, which is that in 1 Corinthians 15, the wor one of the words that are translated things like imperishable, incorruptible, immortal, at least one of them, probably athanatos, uh, means incapable of physically dying. 
W- would you agree with that? Um, yes, that's right. Okay. So, and, and, and toward the end of that chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul seems to indicate, to me anyway, that, that the, the purpose of having immortality in that sense, physically living forever, is, is so, that he can, uh, so that one can inherit the kingdom of God. Would you agree with that? That's right. I do. Okay. So, so are you, do you, is it your belief that the risen lost inherit the kingdom of God since they also have immortality in the sense of being incapable of quickly dying? Yep, uh, Hebrews 9 teaches that so you die once and then you come to judgment. So, so you uh, clear, die again. Just, everybody lives forever. Yeah. Just to be clear, maybe you misheard my question, and I apologize if that's the case. Um, okay. Would you? Are you saying that the risen lost inherit the kingdom of God? Uh, no, no. Um, that the, immort- the purpose of immortality for um, the, the elect or the saints would be inheriting the kingdom of God, and the purpose of immortality for the unelect would be to uh, inherit uh, eternal conscious suffering, on my view. Okay. So now, you had pressed me earlier in cross-examination to point you to any verse which explicitly stated that the soul is destroyed in the way that I think the body is, uh, and I was able to give you one. Um, can you give me any text which explicitly says that immortality, in the sense of physically living forever, um, is uh, is attributed to the risen loss? Uh, yeah. Um, I would say uh, Revelation 20, Revelation 14, and by no, no, sorry, sorry. Mary and Hebrews. Sorry. sorry, let me repeat myself. That explicitly says that immortality in the sense of physically living forever is given to the risen lost. In other words, that use of oh. immortality. Okay, I can't ask you a question. So um, I will say so, um, I mean, that um, that those words are not used, the wicked will be immortal. But it, it doesn't say that, you know, the Trinity is true either, so I don't have much of a problem sure. with that. Well, sure, but then one verse that says that the soul will be destroyed, if in fact that's what that means, I understand that's an open question, but one verse would be enough to establish it, correct? Um, not if destroyed means suffering and other, other no, places. No, I understand that. That wasn't my question. My question, was, my, my question was, it doesn't matter how many verses there are that explicitly refer to the soul being destroyed. If there's mm-hmm. one, that's enough, correct? Uh, if there's one in context that teaches it, that would be enough, because there's one verse that supports soul scriptura to be consistent, I would say, yeah. I actually think there's a whole ton of text that supports Holy Scripture, but we'll, we'll talk about that another time. Um, yeah. So, uh, so when in Romans Paul says that to those who seek uh, for um, glory and immortality and so forth, God will give uh, eternal life, and that to those who seek for other things, He will give wrath and fury. You're saying that actually both groups, in fact, uh, inherit immortality, correct? That's right. But only the elect seek it because immortality for the lost is a terrible thing. I understand that, but but so so. Uh, so, even though only one group seeks immortality, even though no texts explicitly say that immortality is granted to the, to the lost, even though Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that immortality is given to the state for the purpose of their inheriting the kingdom of God, uh, even though the tree of life in the uh, book of Genesis provided physical ongoing life to Adam and Eve, uh, despite, and, is only, and in, the book, in the imagery of Revelation, uh, all of those things, or, or the tree of life is only given to the saved, despite all of that, because of your interpretation of some texts which you think teach eternal conscious punishment, therefore, you're led to conclude by inference, as you pointed out, that the risen lost will live forever in hell. Isn't that right? Uh, slightly. That isn't, I would say that there's numerous texts, at least not nine or ten of them, that teach eternal conscious torment. Um, so I would, I would okay, say I'll, I'll use a different word. Based on your interpretation of, to use your word, numerous, uh, texts which you think 
um, which you infer teach eternal conscious punishment in hell. Therefore, you're forced to conclude you think that the risen lost will live forever in hell, contra- despite uh, what is seemingly the case to some of us based on the verses that I cited. Is that right? Rationally speaking, I only infer some of them. Some of my infer, some of my don't. Some of my, I would say, the straightforward readings of the actual text. Um, but yeah, there, yeah, that's that's right. I would base it off of um, Hebrews nine and uh, the text that talk about eternal conscious torment. That I would say unbelievers have immortality and they live forever physically. Okay. Now you affirm whatever it means that the risen lost undergo a second death, correct? That's right. I certainly do. Okay. Um, I think that has to be spiritual. Yep. So you think that Hebrews nine is in error? Is that right? Um, I, I think Hebrews is talking about physical death. Does it, does it say physical death there? Uh, well, that's what it would be talking about because believers die, right? And they don't die spiritually, correct? I mean, I can't, I can't right, ask but, questions, but... Yeah. But the book of Revelation doesn't use the word spiritual to refer to the second death either, right? Uh, I would say I mean, that, so, that uh, so the, we, if we have scripture interpret scripture, we will see that um, in, in Luke uh, 16, there's an intermediate state. For the, for the wicked and the beast and the false prophet and the first century thrown into the wrath of flames. And so I would say implicitly it does teach that, yeah. You use systematic theology consistently. Okay, we'll get to systematic theology uh, throughout the course of this debate. But my point is that, um, my point is that in your view, the, the lost undergo two deaths, right? One uh, before judgment and one, one after. One, right? one physical, one spiritual, yeah. I, I, okay. I would say that so then, Okay, I'm glad that we've established that Hebrews 9 doesn't uh, support your view. Now, that aside, and note that that wasn't a question, um, that aside, let's see here, continuing with conditional immortality, um, immortality, uh, Paul, it is, I believe, says, is something that is brought to light by Christ through the gospel. Would you agree? Uh, I take a different interpretation of that text. I think the Greek word can be translated as incorruptibility. So I would take that text to be talking about spiritually uh, incorruptibility, so we inherit that in the age to come. That's why I would take that text you said. Okay. Okay, so... I understand, Devin. I've got to... Uh, I appreciate that. Um, is that word also used in First Corinthians 15? Uh, yes, it is. So let me make sure I understand this, and, and I understand... I, I think I know the answer to this question, but you're saying the word used in 2 Timothy 1.10 is something that is only given to those who believe in Christ, but uh, even though, and, and it's used in 1 Corinthians 15, where a different word is used to refer to the, to the saved as well, but that's something that's in fact given to both saved and lost, correct? Yes, there's a different Greek word that's used there, um, and one of those Greek words, I would at least one of them, I would say. No, I, I understand, but, is, but you said the Greek word in 2 Timothy 1.10 is used in 1 Corinthians 15, right? Yes, yeah, but I would say not okay. everything right. that's true of... So, the, uh, so, um, in so I've got a limited amount of time left, and uh, the last question I guess I've got for you is, um, <clears throat> if I can remember what it was now. Oh, um, is physical life a good thing? Uh, yes, it is. It is, it is an intrinsically good thing. So the lost are experiencing an intrinsically good thing for eternity, is that right? Uh, I would say that in light of their, their condition, that um, that that actually it is an awful thing and they wish, they'd wish to die. Uh, I think so it's obvious to many people that that's the case. So one's experience while physically alive, so one's experience while physically alive, the quality of life determines... That's why um, let me just finish my question then. Okay. Oh, okay, yeah. Well, to answer your question, subjectively it's terrible for them, but objectively in the eyes of God, their value of existing is, 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 inherent, is it's inherently valuable since they're made in the image of God. Is my time starting yet, Devin? 
Yep, it starts right now. Yep, okay. 10 minutes. Yep. Okay. All right, so, um, Chris, um, so if Jesus was unconscious for three days, um, how is he able to raise his resurrection body as taught in uh, John 2.19? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And mind you, the majority of the Greek word agro uh, or raised up is used for supernatural raising of resurrection bodies. How could Jesus raise himself up if he is not conscious? Sure. Um, I think that other texts actually seem to indicate that the Holy Spirit is the one who does the work. Uh, and what's more, uh, I think that, um, for example, when Jesus calls to Lazarus and, to, 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 to come back to life and, and Lazarus gets up, he could in the same way, I think, say, I'm taking my body up. You know, I mean, that, the point that I'm getting at is that I don't think it's at all certain from that text that Jesus is conscious while he's dead and then he raises his body up. I think it's equally plausible that the Holy Spirit is one who does that work, given uh, given the infamous passage about uh, preaching to the departed spirits. Right, um, right here to Jesus. Jesus said, he will, and I will raise it up, so... Is he not, is right, but Jesus not raising it up, or I don't know how you interpret that. Well, I mean, I in other words, the Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit and Jesus could both raise up their resurrection body. That's not like, that doesn't negate that passage. Well, I don't think the Holy Spirit saying. has a resurrection body, but, but that aside, I, my, my point is that, um, I didn't say that. Is that, well, I apologize for misunderstanding you. Um, my, my point is that uh, both Jesus and the Holy Spirit are said to dwell in people's hearts, and I don't think that Jesus' resurrection body comes and physically indwells our hearts. I think rather the understanding is that by means of the Holy, it is the Holy Spirit who indwells us. But because God is triune and because Jesus is uh, is, the, is is God the Son, I think that He can speak of Himself and refer to the triune God, which includes the Holy Spirit, who is the one that I think did the raising work. But I'll just reiterate for the sake of our audience uh, that my view of physicalism and soul sleep is not at all a requisite for annihilationism. Okay, so if Jesus was in contest for three days. How is He able to proclaim the condemnation of the disobedient spirits and? 1 Peter 3, 18-20, which says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, righteous for unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, being, a might, uh, being made alive in the spirit in which he went to proclaim spirits in prison. So, yeah, I don't uh, how actually, did Jesus do that? I, I think your, your interpretation of that is borderline heretical. And the reason that I say that is because the text says that Christ died for sins once for all, that he might bring us to God. By the way, it doesn't say he suffered on the cross and then he died after he paid our penalty. It says he died for sins once for all, but just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, and then it says, but made alive in the spirit. Now, made alive there is a reference to one of two things, I, I suppose. I, I guess there could be more. It could be that he was dead in some spiritual sense and made alive, but that's what I think is pretty borderline heretical, but I think that's a necessary, uh, that's a prerequisite for understanding the text the way that you do, or at least for pressing in a disservice the way that you are. I instead take it to mean that he was made, that made alive in the spirit means that it's, it's after that that he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Either that, or it was, so that's one possible interpretation. In other words, the, the proclamation that happened there happened after his resurrection. That's what the text seems to suggest. The other possible interpretation is the one that numerous commentators have uh, given, and I don't have those, that list in front of me, but I'm sure you're aware of some of them, that it's actually a reference to what he did through the Holy Spirit prior to, or in, in the time of the antediluvians. Um, so there's just no there's just no pressing this text into service. Uh, yeah, I, I mean there are commentators who hold my view, and I'm not saying a lie here means oh, no. uh, that he went spiritual life. I'm just saying that it means that he experiences the quality of life uh, in, in the intermediate state. That is not heretical at all. Never says anything about the intermediate state. But that aside, First uh, Peter three twenty two says right after he goes to um, to, to the uh, right hand of the Father in the, in the ascension. Mm -hmm. So that seems like there's a chronology here. He dies, he goes in and he saves, he's made alive, and he proclaims judgment on the spirits. And then he goes 
um, in, in his resurrection in verse 21, then he goes to be with the Father. Um, is the chronology in this text that your view through can account for? How do you account for that? Oh, I, I don't agree with you that starting at verse 21, it's continuing a chronology. I think that's a terrible, ridiculously absurd interpretation of the text. And, uh, the okay, verse 21 all right, right. That, that, that's, that, that's fine. So if Jesus um, was unconscious for three days, how was he able to uh, be with the thief in paradise in Luke uh, 23, 43? When he says, and I said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Right. So, once again, I'll just reiterate for the sake of our listening audience that this is not at all germane to this debate. But that having been said, we physicalists and, and people who hold to other views that uh, tend to go under the umbrella called soul sleep, they answer this question in one of two ways. One is the way that I tend to hold, which is that this is a pastoral claim that Jesus is making, a pastoral statement. That he's, you've got to understand that from the, from the perspective of somebody like me who holds to soul sleep or physicalism or whatever you might want to call it, you, a person dies, and from their perspective, because they're unconscious, an instant later, they're, they raise, uh, they're raised from the dead. They're conscious this very day from their perspective. Um, and, and with that in mind... Okay, I, 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 I understand your view, but I need to move on with the questions here to get on okay. to this. Um, in Luke 2, 11, it says, for unto you, uh, it, it uses the same Greek word, it says, and, and this is Luke 2, 11, for unto you is born today in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Uh, do you think the Greek word there today means literally today? Well, I think it meant today in the other passage we were just looking at, so I have no problem affirming that. Uh, but so it, actually, it actually meant in that day you'll be with Christ in paradise when the thief, you know, dies and is resurrected with Christ 2,000 years later or agree that whenever Christ comes back. Um, I think the Greek word that doesn't, means that doesn't mean today, does it? I think the Greek word means today, which is the question that you just asked me a second ago. I think that what the the, the meaning of the text is different in these two cases. Uh, I think that in the case of the uh, thief on the cross, Jesus is using it from from the thief's perspective. Um, you're going to die, and it's going to seem to you as if today you're you're, you're with me in paradise. I, I, I understand that, but you, you don't think today is being used in that way in, in Luke two eleven, right? Uh, um, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Luke 421 says, and he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Um, that same Greek word is used there. Do you think that is the same uh, Greek word for today? I mean, it is the same Greek word. I'm, that was stupid. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, okay. It's the same Greek word uh, that's used. Um, so you, you think that means in the person's next perspective, or do you think that means literally today in that verse? In Luke I think that next means literally today, yeah. Okay. And in Luke 5.26, it, it, uh, it says, And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. you think today means today there, or do you mean it 5.26? I think it means, uh, actually, I think that means from the perspective of the people are talking, it just happens that the perspective he's referring to is today. I mean, the, the point that I'm getting at oh, is... Oh, they, 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 they actually refer to that thing. specific day, right? Right there? Yeah, uh-huh. It doesn't mean that in Luke 23:43. Okay, um, so in Luke 20, uh, in Luke 12:28, it says, "But if God shall close the grass which is alive in the field today, in Greek word, and tomorrow is thrown in the fire, how much more will He close you?" You think today there means um, literally today? Yeah, I think it means literally today in every case. The question is how the, how the author is using it. But yeah, that means the same thing. Right. So, but in the in this case of thief, right, he wasn't he wasn't today literally in paradise. That comes like you know thousands of years later, right? From the from the person's perspective, it was today. Okay, but objectively, it wasn't actually today, right? Well, I don't think that any. So I'm asking you: in, in these texts, objectively, does it mean today? 
I don't think I, I'm not, I don't think that's I doubt that's the case at all. I don't think that in each of these cases somebody's giving a scientific textbook, you know, logical statement, uh, you know, in which they're using the word today objectively. I think they're all talking about your experiences today, and you know, in the one we're looking at right now. Um, uh, I don't remember the verse it is, but it, they're, they're all referring to a person's experience of today. Um, no, it happens. Okay, so they're, they're not actually referring to that specific day, though, right? In, in all these verses. Well, I think in all these cases they are. The question is why are they referring to that specific okay. day? And in all these cases. Okay, so uh, uh, 2261, you think the same thing? Are, are you, are you, is my time over, Devin? Devin? No, no, you still have 10 minutes. I still have 10 minutes? Yep. No, you can't. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. Um, so, uh, Chris, in, in uh, the context of Daniel 12, 2, uh, are there any uh, onlookers looking uh, to the unrisen wicked in contempt in the context of Daniel 12? I'm sorry, 12, 2, not 22. Um, well, it says that those who rise to everlasting, I mean, it says some will rise to everlasting life. It doesn't say anything about whether or not they will remain to, on, to, to look out over no, the No, I didn't ask that wickedness. question. I asked, are there any onlookers in the context of Daniel 12 who looking at the unbelievers in contempt in Daniel 12 2? Right. I, I'm familiar. I understood your question. And again, I'll repeat what I was saying. Okay. It says that there were some okay. who will rise to everlasting life, and it doesn't say one way or the other whether those who rise to everlasting life will continue to be around to, to look out on, or to use the word on look like you used, uh, those who are, those, those who, uh, to, to look out on people with disgrace and everlasting contempt. It doesn't, it doesn't say one way or the other. You have to use, uh, okay. you have to use the analogy. No, that, 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 that'll be fine. That'll be fine. I, I appreciate that. All right. In Jude 7, it says when Sodom and Gomorrah suffers the fate of eternal fire. You think, um, and eternal fire here means um, the eternal destruction of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. Is that right? No, that's wrong. Okay. Okay. Can you clarify that for me then? What do you think eternal yeah, fire? Yeah. I mean, I'll, yeah. I'll I'll, I'll I'll take the interpretation that Jonathan Edwards uh, uh, took take, took, which is that that fire, the, the, the eternal fire, refers to the fire by which Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. He says literally. The inhabitants, in, uh, were, uh, the inhabitants were destroyed. Uh, the people. Is it referring to people or just the city? Well, I think it's both. It's, it's clearly both. And, John, and in the works of Jonathan okay, Edward okay. Boyne, too. He's Great. No, that, that'll be fine. Uh, so the inhabitants there, uh, they're, they're, are they destroyed forever? Well, but that's not what I claimed that it means. What's that? No, but that's not what I claimed that it means. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm adding this connect here on what you understand this is meaning here. Could you so clarify exactly what I think it means. <laughs> yeah, I'd be happy to. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. So what does it mean? <laughs> Right. So uh, I, I take kind of uh, my understanding is that it refers to the fire of God Himself, the quintessential consuming fire, and God Himself is eternal. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Mm-hmm. All right, Chris, your turn, sir. Uh, well, actually, just to be clear, if I understand our format correctly, it's my turn to rebut. Correct? That's that's correct. You got it. Okay. Is my time begun? Yes. Yes, sir. All right. All right, so a um, number of things that, that I've got to go through. I'm going to try to take my time. Um, I tend to hurry when I don't have notes in, or uh, text pre-written in advance. And uh, whereas I've got a volume of literature uh, to which Nate had to turn so he could see what it is that I believe, I had almost nothing to go on. So I'm just kind of going by the notes that I've taken during the course of uh, Nate's opening statement. Um, and... What, and I'll just go through them one by one. He said, his first argument was that the eternal conscious punishment view, the traditional view, best explains substitutionary atonement. 
Um, and he went through some effort, I uh, would appreciate it, uh, to establish that the atoning work of Christ was, in fact, substitutionary. And that's something that I already agree with, and so I don't really need to go into Galatians 3.13. But I actually think that uh, Nathan, the traditional view, are terrible at explaining substitutionary atonement, and, in fact, borderline on the heretical. And here's why. Um, as Nate has already established, affirmed, admitted, the risen lost will live physically forever in hell. But Jesus couldn't have, what Jesus bore on the cross couldn't have been the first death, because if it had been, then the saved would live forever. But they don't. They die, and then later are raised to live forever. So Jesus couldn't have borne the first death on the cross. He must have borne the second death. But the risen lost will live forever in hell, according to Nate's own view. In my view, on the other hand, Jesus died on our behalf. And the scripture is replete with examples of texts that indicate that this was the, the, the thing in which the atoning work at least partially consisted, if not primarily, which is my contention based on passages like 1 Corinthians 15 or 4. Jesus died. Now, I never made the claim in my opening that his cessation of consciousness is, a, uh, is, is part of that atoning work um, as well. Uh, I, I, I don't know one way or the other whether or not that's the case. Uh, a, a much more convinced, solid physicalist than I would might make that case. I don't. The text just indicates that he died on our behalf and, and go to great pains to refer to his physical death. So if the lost live forever in hell, then, uh, then Nate's view is not substitutionary atonement. It's just not. Whereas in mine it is. And we could talk about him uh, only being dead for three days versus forever. Uh, but, of course, the traditional view answers it in the exact same way, so that won't do him any good. Now, the reason why I say that it bore, his view borderlines on the heretical is because if he takes the view that so many other traditionalists have, which is that the reason that the God-man was able to uh, suffer the eternity of torment or something qualifying as the eternity of torment, awaiting those for whom he didn't die in the finite duration of suffering that he underwent on the cross, then what that means is that the penalty was paid in, it, it was exhausted in his suffering, and then he died. You see what that does? I mean, it, it almost brings me to tears to think about how terribly that uh, demeans the, the, ato the atoning death of Christ, because it renders it arbitrary and meaningless, and, and it, it removes it as part of the atoning work of the cross. You see, I can say that the atoning work of the, uh, on the cross consisted in his suffering and his death, because the risen lost are going to suffer and die as well. But Nate is forced to say that Jesus' atoning work consisted in his suffering, and then he died after he exhausted the penalty awaiting, that would have otherwise awaited those for whom he died. Um, his death is rendered arbitrary. It's an afterthought, and, and that's, that's sad. It's, it's terrible. So, so actually, substitutionary atonement is far more consistent in uh, conditional immortality and in annihilationism than in his view. Um, worst possible scenario, worst possible explanation is that both views are equal on this view, uh, have equal footing from this view, which is almost what uh, Terence Thiessen says in his blog, if any of you want to look it up. Basically, his view is that neither view has sort of a stranglehold on substitutionary atonement, even if he thinks that my view uh, has a little bit better of a, a foothold in, in, when it comes to this. Now, when the other text, the other argument that he made was in reference to certain texts. He talked about Revelation 14, 10 to 11, um, and, I'm, and I'm glad that, uh, that he did, because as I pointed out in my, in my opening statement, this text is actually far better support for my view. Um, you see, as I explained in my opening, John is, or sorry, yeah, well, the imagery being shown to John, whoever it is that's showing this imagery to John, which I assume is, is the Lord, uh, is, drawing on, uh, is drawing on texts in Genesis and in Isaiah in which Fire and sulfur biologically kill the inhabitants of cities from whose, smoke, from whose remains smoke rises forever. 
Genesis 19.24-28, Abraham looks out on the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the execution of all of its inhabitants and sees smoke rising from the plains. In Isaiah 34, 9 and 10, smoke rises forever from Edom. But nobody thinks that uh, smoke is, you know, that, 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 uh, that the, the cities are still burning to this day, that, that Edom is still burning to this day. Uh, and if somebody wants to take that passage as catalogically, nobody thinks that, the, that smoke is going to forever bellow from the remains of Edom. Everybody knows that smoke rising forever, in this case, in both these cases, is, is, is kind of like a mushroom cloud. It's a symbol for utter, total destruction, everlasting destruction. Um, so Revelation 14:9-11 just doesn't support my uh, doesn't support my view at all. Revelation 20, the same thing is true. There's just no support for his view here. The, the only support that uh, Revelation 20 provides to the traditional view of hell is if one takes it literally. That's it. It's, now, I'm not saying that you can simply dismiss it as meaning whatever you want to say that it means. But what I'm saying is that it requires careful interpretation. And once even a slight amount of careful interpretation is applied to this text, you'll find that it's a far better support for my view. For one thing. You know, uh, Nate claimed that, uh, that Revelation 13, not, or sorry, 13, 18 interprets the beast as referring to a man. Well, I could just as easily point out that in Revelation 13, 9, it refers to a kingdom and its successive kings. I mean, this is a really simplistic approach Nate is trying to take. And then he tries to claim that because the devil is an individual, then therefore it follows that the beast and false prophet are individuals. But again, the beast is interpreted in Revelation 13 as referring to a kingdom of successive kings. So obviously that, that kind of simplistic approach will not work. But if we look at the imagery upon which this draws in Daniel 7, we see that uh, successive beasts destroy the previous beasts, and the final beast, which is strikingly similar to the beast of Revelation, and in fact, I think many uh, commentators will acknowledge that Daniel 7 is, what's in, is, is the foundation for the imagery here in the book of Revelation. Uh, in, in Daniel 7, the final beast in the imagery is slain, and then its dead body is thrown into a river of fire. And when the, when the angel interprets this imagery of this beast being slain and its dead body being thrown into a river of fire, he explicitly says that it represents a, the, a, the domain of a kingdom, the, the, the reign of a kingdom uh, being annihilated forever. And then, and then that kingdom's reign is followed by the reign of the, uh, of the saints. Uh, which is exactly the same thing we see in the book of Revelation. As soon as the devil, the beast, and the false prophet are thrown into the, the lake of fire, the kingdom of the reigning saints begins. It's the same thing. The imagery is different, of course. In Daniel 7, a beast is slain and its dead body is thrown into a, a river of fire, whereas in John, in, in Revelation, uh, a beast is thrown alive into a, a lake of fire. But either way, the meaning behind the imagery is the same thing. It refers to a kingdom's dominion coming to an end. In fact, it refers to the end of everything thrown into it. That's why death and Hades is thrown into this, this lake of fire as well. Death and Hades is depicted as a personal agent in, in um, uh, I want to say Revelation 6, the, the, four, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Death and Hades are the four horsemen. It's a personal agent, but in Revelation 20, it's thrown into the lake of fire. And most commentators that I'm aware of understand this and what it obviously means. It's the same thing that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, the, 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 the destruction of the final enemy that is death itself, which doesn't mean that Everybody has to live forever. What it means is that following the judgment and the second death of the lost, there, nobody will die anymore, which, of course, is what will happen because only the saved will be given immortality and the rest will die. Now, as for the second death, this is, this is really critical. We have to understand the difference between what is depicted in imagery and what the imagery means, what its proper interpretation is. If we go back to the very first case where we see this kind of distinction, we go back to Joseph and, his, uh, and, his, and, and the dreams that he interprets when he's in prison. Uh, the, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, they have these perplexing dreams. One of them dreams of, you know, uh, cows eating other cows, you know, and nobody takes this literally. But Joseph interprets the imagery to, to, to refer to years of, of, of plenty followed by years of famine. Now, the point of this is this. 
imagery, the perplexing apocalyptic imagery in scripture is very symbolic. But when its interpretation is given, the interpretation is very plain and straightforward. So when we get to Revelation, and in the imagery, John sees these, these things thrown into a lake of fire and tormented forever. It doesn't matter that Nate points out that torment means torment and that forever and ever means forever and ever. I agree. The question is, what does that imagery mean? Well, John and God himself tell us that. They interpret the imagery and say that it means the second death of people thrown into the, uh, into the lake of fire. And throughout Scripture, vast majority of cases, death refers to bodily death. So the second death of the lost is not some spiritual death. In fact, it can't be. The lost are, every, the lost are already spiritually dead. It, the, the Nate's view is not really a second death. It's a continuation of the first death, uh, just one of difference of degree. But in my view, they'll actually die a second time, and it will be forever. Uh, Matthew 25, you know, eternal fire, we already established that. Jude, the eternal fire destroys the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, just like Jonathan Edwards says. Uh, eternal punishment, if the punishment is death and if it's forever, uh, then it is eternal punishment. And I, and I affirm that it is. But only the saved, it says, receive eternal life, contrary to Nathan's point of view. Luke 16, he's brought up a number of times, it refers to the intermediate state and, you know, let alone arguments about whether it's a parable and so forth. So, Long and short of it is, there's simply no support from Scripture whatsoever for Nate's view, despite the admirable attempts that he's making to try and provide support from the Scriptures. Thank you. All right. Thank you, sir. And uh, Nate, right. uh, Debbie, just let me know when we'll, just cut me off when my time is up, okay? All right. Go ahead. Thank you, sir. So, uh, Chris went into the atonement and how my, my view seems rather heretical. I, I want to first point out that he misunderstands my definition of hell which he draws that inference from. I said that hell for mere human persons. That's the key point we need to listen to, is mere human persons. So for mere human persons, they can't bear that concentrated degree of wrath that Christ bore, um, but Christ could bear it. So the exact same punishment, which, which is just spread out through all eternity for us, uh, is the Lord Jesus took a concentrated form, because he's a divine person, he's able to bear that he necessarily exists as a divine person. He's able to bear that degree of wrath. Um, but if you, uh, if Chris, use the response to try to uh, justify his atonement by saying, well, the value of Jesus' personhood uh, uh, qualifies him to take that degree of wrath, but that's the degree of uh, value the person has. That's not te- that doesn't take away or negate the fact that Jesus took our exact punishment, which is what Galatians uh, 3 tells us. He took our exact punishment. So Chris has to uh, shorten the atonement, shorten it, and uh, mess up the exact punishment view of it because he's trying to muddle in his annihilationism, and it's just not going to fit. Um, he also said about death, is Jesus dying? Well, yeah, Jesus dies once, just like all unbelievers die once. And when unbelievers die, they receive the wrath of God this earth, just like when uh, we as Christians, we suffer. Um, that's not God's wrath, that's God sanctifying us. And so when unbelievers suffer, it's their hardening, and it's their wrath. So when unbelievers die, it's interest into life. When unbelievers die, it's the very wrath of God being poured out on them so, so that they can go on to experience more wrath in the intermediate state in hell and in the second resurrection. So I you perfectly account for this, but there's no degrees to be had. You're either conscious or you're not conscious. And Chris uses the value of the person of the Son of God to try to lessen the atonement, but the, the, the fact that he doesn't take the exact punishment. Um, he does take our exact degree of wrath on the cross. And so... I, I think it's Chris's view that can't account for this and him saying uh, the, the death is just an act of that. No, I think it's Jesus uh, taking the actual wrath for us if he dies. So that's, that's the wrath that an unbeliever would experience if they die under God's judgment and separation from the Father. So that, that deals with the atonement issues. Um, and then looking at the, the text that um, Chris brought up, 
Um, he brought up uh, Jude 7 and uh, says eternal fire there. There's no evidence that eternal fire means, I, I believe that obviously God's consuming fire and that, yeah, he's, you know, have an eternity of wrath. I, I do I do believe that, and uh, I think it's different for Chris's view since he's not pouring out that wrath, but there's no evidence that it means, you know, the eternal fire just means the wrath of God, although I think that that's true. I don't think it's true theologically, but I don't think it's taught there in that text. If we look at the background literature of the New Testament, we'll find Fourth Maccabees that eternal fire refers to suffering. And so those who were um, who were uh, destroyed in the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah were, in fact, um, uh, suffering eternal fire in their intermediate state and on into their resurrection bodies. So they do, they, they start in Sodom and Gomorrah, and it goes all through eternity. So it is eternal fire. And uh, fire is connected to torment in Luke 16, which... Chris things a parable, but um, there's no evidence of this, and there's no uh, evidence that a fictitious story like Chris holds to. The uh, story he tried to give in other debates uh, is not even related, because there's no rich and poor man in there. The tax collectors are rather rich. But it doesn't say it's a parable that uses proper names. And so the fire is connected to torment, and so if the fire, the uh, wrath of God, comes on the inhabitants of Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah for all eternity, then that, uh, that is eternal fire that torments them, that causes them to suffer. Um, and Chris also went into Matthew uh, 10, talking about destroying the body and the soul there. And if you look at a parallel passage of that, we'll find in Luke that it doesn't say that, that they're thrown into Gehenna, that don't fear those who can do nothing after you, to you, but rather fear those who can throw you into, uh, into hell. And we know from Matthew 18 that Hades is, or hell is, or Gehenna is paralleled with an eternal fire, which is, we have background evidence, means uh, eternal conscious torment. And so we'll, we'll see if we look at these passages consistently, uh, what, what they entail that it does not refer to uh, being destroyed there. I mean, destroyed can mean um, uh, a, an, like an um, analogy or a metaphor, uh, like I, the Lakers destroyed the bulls. It, you know, it's used that way in uh, Romans, when it's talking to the weaker brethren, and in 1 Corinthians 8 it's used that way as well. And so... Um, Given that, we have Luke to interpret Matthew 10, and that tells us that Gehenna uh, is an eternal fire, then we should really interpret destroyed there to mean suffering forever. And also the demons seem to use a destroy and torment interchangeably. Another point I wanted to bring out in this debate that I think kind of important is the fact that uh, Chris says that his physicalism and his soul sleep has nothing to do with, with this debate. But all the passages he cites... Um, it's talking about the destruction of bodies. So if you hold the dualism, this doesn't establish his view. Um, he only has one text, and that's Matthew 10, which I don't think establishes annihilationism at all. So if we have one text for annihilationism, and then we have all these texts in Revelation and in Jude, and I think in um, in, in, in Second Peter as well, to show us eternal conscious torment. Um, and so, uh, in Matthew 25 as well, that wasn't uh, responded to uh, when I gave a contextual argument. Um, so, I think when we bring this all together, we'll see that this is a real problem, because Chris is bringing in his physicalism. He's not just rethinking hell, he's rethinking human persons altogether. Um, and we'll, if we also see that soul sleep is germane to this today, because imagine this. If Jesus dies, Jesus dies, and he doesn't cease to be conscious, he is still, still uh, spiritually able to be conscious then there's no point at which Jesus actually bears in any degree or any way Chris wants to qualify 
there's no way in which Jesus actually bears the wrath for hell, which is eternal cessation of life, uh, the eternal cessation of conscious um, existence. So bringing that together then, uh, it's very relevant to Solstice. That's why I bring it up. If Jesus is conscious during those days, then he can't bear the punishment for our sins. And that's, and that's very important to, to point out because these, uh, when you hold views, they affect one another. And we see that Chris's uh, views affect one another. Looking at the text he went to for Revelation, he said, oh, well, you know, the, um, the, the Revelation 2010 passage I pointed to about the Satan and the beast and the false prophet suffering forever and ever, um, that, that, that was supposed to be negated by the fact that Daniel interprets it to be a corporate entity or a kingdom. Well, uh, as Ken Gentry points out, um, it is both a corporate and individual entity. Um, that's why he interprets it to be an individual in Revelation um, 13. So uh, the question is, is that it's like the body of Christ. This is an analogy. Uh, Christ is an individual, and we are his body, and we can speak of Christ as a body, of Christ as all believers, and then we can speak of Christ individually. And that's how, as most commentators, commentators recognize, that's how uh, John is using the imagery here in Revelation 13. So when we come to passages which talk about Satan, who's an individual, uh, being tormented, and we have a beast which is interpreted to be also a man, how are we going to interpret that as a corporate entity or as an individual? Well, to be contextually consistent, we should interpret it as an individual. I think that's more consistent and reasonable. Chris appealed to the fact that angel interprets imagery at the end of Revelation 18. If you look, though, at the beginning of Revelation 18, the angel's also speaking, but no one takes that to be an interpretation of imagery. The fact that Chris takes this specific part of Revelation to be a reference to the imagery is utterly arbitrary. There's no textual adjustment. The angel talks a lot about talking about more imagery. It's not necessarily whenever an angel is speaking throughout the book of Revelation, it's an interpretation of the imagery. So to assign that particular passage as an interpretation of the imagery seems rather textually arbitrary to me. He appealed to um, Isaiah 34, if I got the, the chapter reference right there. And Isaiah 34 is um, talking about um, uh, a place being, you know, not existing forever. But the Hebrew word there for alam just means a long time. Um, so uh, alam doesn't necessarily mean forever and ever. It's using um, hyperbole to describe a long time in which the place would be ashes and uh, burning heat. So when we go to the book of Revelation, then, when we have the imagery saying God exists forever and ever, and God, you know, is worshipped forever and ever, ten times, how are we going to interpret? Are we going to interpret as an Old Testament, interpret the New Testament, or are we going to use the consistent imagery which refers to forever and ever in the uh, Revelation to interpret it? Well, I'm Reformed, so I think the New Testament should interpret uh, the Old Testament rather than vice versa. So when we come to these passages, um, we'll look at it, we have to have the New Testament. Uh, about 30 seconds. Okay, uh, so thank you. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just stop it there. All right. Okay, Chris, are you there? I'm here. All right. Uh, Ten minutes across you can. Is that right? Yes. Time is yours. Okay. Uh, Nate, is when death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, is that an individual? Uh, no, it refers to, uh, okay. it in Revelation 6, um, those who are, uh, going to be punished and transferring to the intermediate state to be punished, uh, on the judgment, um, on the so people, Israelites. Well, let me make sure I understand what you're saying. Are you saying that in Revelation 20, when, when death and Hades are emptied of their dead, 
the dead people empty themselves? Is that, I mean, I'm just trying to understand because death and Hades are so... No, no, I, I'm not saying that. I, I, I agree that um, the imagery that's being communicated there is that death and Hades will, will, will be uh, one with, with hell because they, they both, uh, for unbelievers, contain wrath and punishment. So that wrath and punishment will be a continuation in the uh, all eternity. So that's how I take the imagery so, to be caught there. Yeah. So death and Hades, abstract entities, experience eternal torment, is that what you're saying? Um, no, I, it doesn't say that they suffer forever and ever. They just says that they're one with the lake of fire and second death. Oh, so, well, it, it actually doesn't say they're one with the lake of fire. It says they're thrown into it. But, but you're saying that... Right, right. I'm, you're I'm, I'm that, just interpreting the imagery as... I so when, so, when, so when the beast, the false prophet, and the devil are thrown into the lake of fire and tormented forever, something else is thrown into it and isn't tormented forever and ever. Is that right? Right, because it doesn't say forever and ever. Okay. Now, uh, you said that Isaiah 34 uses the word olam, which doesn't necessarily mean forever and ever. Are, am I to mm-hmm. understand that you're saying that Isaiah 34, even though it has not just the smoke rising forever, but other elements of this, of this imagery from Revelation, isn't one of the underlying passages in, in, in behind this imagery uh, in, in John? Is that right? Um, I, I would say that it's not per- perfectly parallel. I disagree with any traditionalists on that. But I, I would say that some of the language is, is used, um, but I would rather have the book of Revelation interpret that imagery rather than um, Old Testament passage. Understood. Okay. Uh, now, can you point to any example in the Synoptic Gospels in which Apollomy, as used in Matthew 10, 28, is used in the active voice transitively to refer to what one person does to another, in which it doesn't mean slay or kill? I, I, I think it's referring to every time it's used, um, one person doing one, another thing to another, I think it's reference to killing physical bodies. Which you, physical life. which you don't think will happen in Gehenna, correct? Um, I do not think that will happen in Gehenna because um, it's talking about the destruction of body and soul. It's not the exact same type of um, uh, simple par- uh, parallel that those other passages that you mentioned uh, represent. I'm trying to follow your answer to my question. Uh, help me to understand this. So if I understood you correctly, you said that everywhere else in the Synoptic Gospels, or at least those other places that you probably know I have in mind, Apollo, mean, uh, Apollo mean means to the, the death of the physical body, the biological death of the body, but it doesn't in Matthew 10, 28? Is that what you're saying? Um, oh, I, I, there's, I, I would say it's talking about chill, which is a different Greek word, and then it goes on to use Apollo mean. And I would say it doesn't mean that, that there because um, because the parallel passage in Luke, which says, um, don't fear him who can do nothing to you afterwards, but fear him who can uh, throw you so you're saying that hell. You're, so I'm sorry. Uh, I'm trying to understand because, see, for me, all of Scripture is inerrant, and I can't just turn to one passage and then ignore another. So I'm trying to understand what you do with Matthew 10.28. Are you saying that... Even though Apollomy is used in numerous other places in the Synoptic Gospels in the act of voice transitively to refer to slaying, killing the body, that's not what it means here in Matthew 10:28. Um, no, I, I have a host of reasons for why it doesn't doesn't mean that. You want me to give you those reasons? Well, I think we've been doing that during the course of the debate. I'm, I'm just asking a question: Does Apollomy mean that in Matthew 10:28? Given how many other times in the Synoptic Gospels it's used in that way. Um, no, because it's not uh, used that way when it talks about the destruction of a body and a soul. It's talking about just, just someone killing somebody else. Okay. Is there anywhere else where kill refers is used specifically only in reference to the body besides this one passage? Can you say that again? I, I didn't grasp what you were... Sure. If I understood your answer to my question correctly, what you said is that because all the other places where Apollo is used in the Synoptic Gospels, the word body isn't mentioned, therefore it means something different. But does kill mean something different everywhere else, since nowhere else does kill and body refer to, uh, appear together? Um, 
I mean, if I understand your question, Chris, which I may have not, um, I mean, I, I would say that the way that Matthew 10 is working is that it's talking about just killing a person in this life and then doing something more to them afterwards. And that sort of textual complexity is not shared in those parallel examples you gave me. So, I, I, I mean, I'm not sure what you're trying to get at here. Okay, so I'll, I'll try to repeat it one more time. Your answer, if I understood you correctly, to the reason why, or to at least a reason why Apollo doesn't mean slay or kill like it does in all the other places in the Synoptic Gospels and it's used the same way, is because none of those other places refer to a distinction between body and soul. And my question to you was... Oh, no, I'm is, sorry, I'm sorry, yeah, that's clear. Yes, you're right, yeah. You, you is there anywhere else where kill is, a, is, is used in reference to specifically body versus soul besides Matthew 10, 28? Um, if I understand your question correctly, which I may have not, um, I, not to my knowledge. Great. Second Peter 2.6 says that by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he, God condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. How, how did the biological death and extinction of the inhabitants of those cities serve, serve as an example of final punishment, since in your view the Lord Right, right. It's a good, very, very good question. Yeah, um, so I, I would say in that passage, Second Peter, that he's talking about false teachers who have presently entered into the church, and um, as 1 Corinthians 11 indicates, uh, people were dying because they were not eating, um, they were not taking the communion properly. And so, so I, I think this referring to this life? That's correct, yes. So then Jude 7 isn't a parallel? Uh, it's, it's a parallel to, to, what the, to what the ungodly false teachers will, will face um, if they persist in their heresies in the first century. So Jude 7, oh, so Jude 7 is a reference to what the false teachers experienced in the first century. Yeah, yeah, those false teachers, uh, God will, will, will wipe them out, yeah. Because By of eternal fire. Life. Yeah, yeah. By eternal fire. Uh, that's a Jude. Uh, you're talking about Second Peter or Jude one. Because I think they're getting it, I think they're, they're parallel, but they're getting at different things. Okay. Alright, so, Second Peter 2.6 is talking about something different from Jude 7. Uh, not something totally different, but slightly different. Slightly different meaning: live forever versus die for or die for some period of time. Well, one of them one of them includes death and being punished forever and ever afterwards, and the other one just refers to just wiping and wiping them off the mat in this life. Okay. Yeah. So uh, Jude says that their punishment, which I think most commentators would disagree with you, but that's okay. Uh, most that I'm aware of would say that Jude and Second Peter are parallels. Jude says that their punishment. I know. I, I, I didn't example. say that. I said Hold on, I'm asking a question here. Jude says that their punishment. Jude says that their punishment serves as an example or are exhibited as an example. And the Greek word prokamai means open the public view or exposed that kind of thing. So I guess the question I have for you is. Where is the suffering of the lost in the intermediate state, specifically the lost that were destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah, where, where is their suffering in the intermediate state uh, open to public view in the scriptures? Uh, yes, it's a very good question. Very good question. Yeah, um, I would say that um, all people know, it says in Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from all ungodliness. Uh, so God's wrath is going to everybody, and so people would know that Sodom and Gomorrah, as, as, an, as a, they, they know conceptually by virtue of God, writing on their hearts that God will uh, bring those to eternally suffer forever, um, that they know that, uh, it's written on their hearts, they know it, and so that's how they know that the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah suffer eternal fire forever. Well, but then if they're not, it's not an example, it's, some, it's a future thing that has not yet happened. I guess, so if I understood you correctly what you're saying... No, no, I mean, it's, it's, a pre it's so, presently yeah. happening. They're, they're, they're presently in their intermediate state experiencing eternal fire. But it's something that people, but it's something that people have an abstract conception of because of the 
because of the fact that we all know that people experience wrath, you're saying that that's a more likely reference than the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah by eternal fire that's laid out plainly in Scripture? I wouldn't call it so much abstract. I would just say we just know it, and it's concrete. But that knowledge, which is sort of innate rather than something that we can read about or see, or, or you know, specifically that has to do with Sodom and Gomorrah, the fact that we know Sodom and Gomorrah might experience wrath in the intermediate state if somebody believes in the intermediate state, which I don't, uh, you're saying that that is more likely what is open to public view or exposed than the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in Scripture, which is which in Second Peter two is used to this, is used as an example of extinction. Uh, yes, I, I mean we didn't actually experience them, um, you know, being punished. We didn't see the, the fire come down. So um, you know, I, it would be also conceptual before reading back into the Old Testament. But that, but a record of that is open to public view, correct? A record of the destruction. Right. Of the there, there's okay. also there's so in Mark nine forty eight. There, there, is no, there is no record. Can you point me to a record in Scripture in which the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah are suffering in the intermediate state? Well, I mean, not, not in those words, but... It's, okay. you know, now, Mark 9.48 says that their fire will not be quenched and their worm will not die. And it's quoting from Isaiah 66.24. What, what is in view? What is, what is the, uh, the, the, the object of the fire and worms? Or the, or the, you know, what is the host uh, of the fire? Yeah, I would, oh, I'm sorry. I can you to finish your question. I apologize. I think you know where I'm going. What is in view in my Isaiah 66:24? Yeah, we have the New Testament for the Old Testament, and uh, when the unbelievers are said to, um, you know, rise again in Revelation 20, they are called the dead, and they are standing before the books and being judged for their sins. And so, if I have the New Testament interpret the Old Testament, um, I, I will see that, that that's a reference to spiritual death. They're 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 so they're spiritually corpses, as I would put it. Yeah, but that's, yeah, that's how I interpret that. Okay. Um, that's fine. Okay. It's, uh, Nate, it is your turn, sir. Oh, okay. Didn't see that one coming. Okay, um, so going down here to my uh, questions. Chris, let me get up my questions here. Um, okay. So um, when Jesus died, uh, Chris, was the second person of the Trinity, was he conscious? I don't think so, no. Okay, so uh, you don't think that uh, God has to be three living conscious persons? Uh, I'm sorry, repeat the question. So you don't think that God has to be three living conscious persons? I think that God exists in his being outside of time. And I don't think that if the second person entered into time and became unconscious in time, that that changes the, uh, the, the life and active consciousness of God outside of time. So, are there two conscious persons? There's a conscious person uh, in time, and there's a conscious person outside of time. So, the conscious no, person the same is still. Person. What? No, it's the same person. Okay, but so the one is unconscious, right? And the other one in, in time is unconscious. The other one outside of time is not conscious. I don't know what you mean by the other one, because that's not my view. Oh, you said that Jesus, that Jesus, the second person, he was outside of time, and so he is to be conscious outside of time. Yeah. Okay, so then you have outside of time, one person is conscious, and then inside of time you have a person who is uh, is is a human and that's conscious, and so you have, it looks like you have two conscious persons there. I don't see why it looks that like true? that. I mean, no, I don't think so. I mean, for example, uh, for example, when the, in the Christophanies in the Old Testament, um, well, I guess I guess the better question to ask, and I know I can't ask questions, but if you believe in divine timelessness like I do, then I don't see how you could make the argument that you're making, because in the Christophanies in the Old Testament, God begins active, acting in time. 
Um, and I don't think that when the person, when, when the first, second, or third person of the Trinity, well, I, we're talking about Christophanes now, so when, in a, when the second person of the Trinity acts in time in the Old Testament, I don't think it becomes two persons, one in time and one outside of time, or, and, and I think it's the same person. And I don't think that the time fullness of the one in time uh, has any bearing on or problem with the timelessness of, of that same person outside of time. Okay, well, I don't hold that particular view of divine timelessness, but nonetheless, are human persons physical or not physical? <clears throat> well, I think that human persons consist of a, uh, a physical body and a, and a brain from which a mind arises. Okay, so they're physical, okay. Are divine persons physical or non-physical? Divine persons, uh, uh, the divine, all three divine persons of, uh, in, in Godhead prior to the incarnation w were divine persons, and I think that most historical theologians would say that he, that I'm, Jesus I'm, remained... I'm not doubting that, that's what, that's what I'm asking. Okay, that's fine. Is Jesus a physical person or a non-physical person, in your view? Using the language, the way that theologians have used the phrase divine person, that's what he is. He's a divine person, even though he has two natures. I, on the other hand, I have no problem saying he's a divine and a human person, which would mean he's a, he's a non-physical and a physical person. But, but to use the classical language, he's a divine person. Right. Um, yeah. So you, you reject the classic construal that he's a divine person that takes on a human nature. I don't reject it. I just I, I think that language is being pressed too hard into service. Yes, he's a divine yeah. person, and I think that I think that I think that incorporeality refers to being, not person. Do you realize that historians hold hold that Jesus is both a physical. Uh, I'm sorry, is a human divine person. Historians hold that position. Well, they're, they're, they're using the language differently than I am. When I say that Jesus is a human and a divine person, I don't mean that he's two persons. I don't mean that there's, you know, I, I don't, I'm not using that language in heretical terms. I just mean, look, if you see, a, if you see a, per, a human person, if you see somebody that's got a human nature, you tend to think that's a human person. That's a, that's, you know, that, that's, a, that's a human person, you know. Um, okay, whereas, that's fine. So, yeah, that's fine. My point is that it's not two people. It's one person. No, uh, I, 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 I understand what you're trying to get at. So, okay. In the traditional hypostatic union, the immaterial person of Christ is a union between the human nature and the divine nature. And I'd like to know, Chris, on your view where Christ is physical, how is Christ united to the, to the divine nature? Uh, how? I mean, the, the divine and the human natures are combined into the one person of Christ. I'm not convinced that person, that, that incorporeality consists in personhood. It consists in being in my understanding. Now, I'm no classic theologian, but that's the point I'm getting at. So when I, when I think of a, the, the reason that the Holy Spirit and the Father are solely uh, incorporeal is not because they're divine persons, it's because they're, they have divine nature, but, and they don't have a human nature, whereas the, divine, whereas the Son does. I'm not sure if I'm answering um, your question. So you yeah, you're not. I, I'm asking, um, okay, so you have a physical object over here, and you have an immaterial thing. Mm -hmm. What unites this physical person of Christ to the immaterial second person of the Trinity, and, and to his nature, to the immaterial divine nature, not physical? Divine. Are you asking me if there's a zipper or something? I'm not, I'm not sure I understand. Well, what I mean, is, what is there, is there anything them? that unites them? What is it that unites them? That's what I'm trying to ask. I don't know how to answer your question. I mean, I, I'm, not, I, I, I'm not aware of anybody who thinks that the divine nature and the, and the human nature are sort of knit together with yarn or something like that. I don't even know well, what Well, actually, it's is. called the hypostatic union, personal union. So well, yeah, of course, but that's the hypostatic union is not a reference to a concrete thing. Excuse me, let me finish, please. They, they believe it's the immaterial person 
um, which unites the human nature to the divine nature. That's why it's called the hypostatic. Yeah, and I would say it's the divine nature. Uh, so, in light of that, how would you how would you respond? I would say the divine person of the Son has the is, has, has the human nature united to his divine nature. Okay, uh, I, I, what unites it? God. I mean, I really don't know what you're getting at. The, I, look, I agree with the hypostatic union, and I don't think the hypostatic union refers to the what that holds the two natures together. The hypostatic union is a reference to the fact that the two natures are united. Right, but it's actually, well, I'll, I'll go on. This is fine. So you you hold all the historic creeds of Christian Christendom, right? Like all the historic Christian creeds. Well, no, I, I suppose because I'm a physicalist, I, I probably would have to deny what the what the authors of Chalcedon probably meant by a um, by a rational spirit or, or a uh, I forget the exact phrase, but I, you probably know what I'm getting at. So that one yeah, small that, I mean, that was actually a good, good prediction. By the, by the way, that's, <laughs> that's where I'm going. Um, so thank you. Um, so yeah, so you you would reject the. Uh, classical creed of Chalcedon, right? I would reject that one specific part of Chalcedon, yes. Okay. Um, I, I'm curious to ask, how many wills does Jesus have? One, one or two? One. Um, do you realize that you hold to uh, monothelitism, which is a uh, classical uh, Christological heresy? I'm not aware of that, no. Okay. Okay. Um, okay, so... Um, Oh, that was another question I had. Okay, so um, the Greek word colossus, as used in Matthew 25, 46, as punishment, um, and I know you take to be, you know, cessation of life, eternal death, that sort of thing. Is there any clear indication that this word means um, death and following that death, there's non-consciousness, um, is, and that that word punishment means that? Is there any context uh, outside of uh, Matthew 25, 46 that means that, in, in, your, in your view, in terms of literature outside of Sure. I mean, there, there's literature outside of the canon. Uh, I don't have it in front of me, and if you want me to dig it up, I can, but I, I imagine you don't want me to waste your time. But I will just yeah, say that... You're, you're yeah. Very, very right. You got it. Yeah. Um, uh, we, we do have... Hold on. Let me, let me answer your question, though. We do have literature outside of the canon in which the word Colossus refers to the punishment of death rather than the punishment of torment, um, both in the Septuagint and in extra-biblical literature. Uh, the, second, the second thing is that it's contrast with eternal life. And so right off the bat, the punishment of death is a natural fit. Thirdly, the phrase eternal fire is used both in Jude to refer to the fire that comes down and destroys the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, as well as in Matthew 18.8, where it's parallel to Gehenna, which in the Old Testament was a reference to place, to the valley of slaughter, a place of fire which consumes corpses uh, by fire and by maggots. So I think there's quite a bit of evidence, in fact, that it refers to what I think it does. Oh, well, I, I disagree with those interpretations of those passages, nonetheless. In Revelation 12.5, uh, oh, actually, I wanted to finish up that question. What was, what was I doing? Um, and, and so in Matthew 25, 46, it talks about the punishment of death, but does, does, does that Greek word ever mean the punishment of death followed by not being conscious? Well, my view isn't necessarily that the punishment, uh, that, the, that the eternal punishment in view is a cessation of consciousness. I just say it's the punishment of death. Uh, now, if you want to get into why I think that they continue to be conscious, or why they, why they go on to be unconscious, or, or why their punishment of death also entails their cessation of consciousness, right. you can get into that. But the point I'm getting at is, my view is not that their punishment is the absence of consciousness. It's the absence of life, which I think happens to entail the absence of consciousness as well, if that makes sense. Right. 
Okay. Yeah, that's fine, Chris. In Revelation 12.5, it says, um, she gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations. Do you think the imagery here is referring to a male child who will rule over all the nations? I, uh, well, I think that the, what's depicted in the imagery is a, is a child who is, and, and then the interpretation is that the child that that child in the imagery represents is to rule all the nations, yes. Okay. I mean, there are lots of times in the imagery here and elsewhere that, okay. Time. 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 Yes. Okay. Uh, and then, yeah. and then so just, just, just my own edification and education. Um, where, okay, so I, I just did cross-examination, then it's Chris, and then it's me, and then, then, then my, my, my closing was Chris. I, I, I'm the one that wrote it out, but I know I've, I'm, I've lost track here. You close first. I, I close first, right. And then you cross-exam me, and then I cross-exam No, 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 no. Yeah. I, I'm going to cross you now, and then you're going to close, and then I'm going to close. Oh, got it. Perfect. Thank you. Uh-huh. All right, so, Jesus, in your view, um, if I understood you correctly, uh, you know, I understand your language about uh, uh, the concentration of the wrath that he was capable of bearing and so forth, but if I understand you correctly, that, that, that which his God's wrath poured out on Christ caused was his torment, his suffering, is that correct? Physical, mental, uh, spiritual suffering. Suffering is death. His suffering and his death, right. but, his, but 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 the wrath of God does not produce the physical death of the risen lost. Correct? Uh, not the risen lost, but they are punished. They are punished for that um, in this life. Okay, so are we, right? I mean, we die as well, right? Uh, unbelievers, believers are never punished. I would say that's that that would say we're never punished for anything. God may sanctify <laughs> us if there are certain things, but um, traditional view of justification would say we're not punished. We're not given God's wrath if we're believers. So, in Romans 5, when Paul indicates that the reason why people continue to die between Adam and Moses was because, uh, was because in Adam all sinned, um, you're saying that for unbelievers, their death is a result of their being, in, uh, the, the result of their having sinned in Adam, but believers still die. It's just not a punishment. Right. So, the, 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 the result of what Adam did, um, so, so, as God has got to set things up, results in the everybody everybody dying. Yeah, but what that death means is different for believers and unbelievers. Yeah. So, could, so could, if, 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 if Jesus was our substitute by bearing the concentrated wrath of God, which produced different things uh, for the lost and for Christ, does that mean that God could, say, punish the lost by turning them into a chicken? Uh, no, no, he can't. So then the punishment that Christ bore uh, should match up, uh, at least in some major ways, uh, with what the law Right, is. right, yeah, it should, be, it should be the exact degree of punishment we receive. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, let's see here, where can I go with this? Um, so in Isaiah 33... Um, verse 14, let's see here, 14, it says, Sinners in Zion are terrified, trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? Who are those that can live with the consuming fire there? Uh, those who can live in the consuming fire of God um, are, are believers. They're being sanctified and they're being, as Peter says, the believers are being transformed by the fire because God will protect them from the fire of his wrath and they transform them um, rather than uh, punishing them because as God preserved um, 
uh, Daniel's three friends in the fire. So they are, they are preserved um, from the punishment that Israel would have received at that time. I think that's a great answer, uh, except that, in your view, the lost can live in the consuming fire as well, right? Uh, oh, this is talking about, if you look at consuming fire, I think it's referring to uh, punishment in this life, um, referring to the fact that God always consumes um, that which uh, he uh, He pours his wrath upon. So in, in this life, referring to unbelievers. So I don't think it refers to um, eschatological judgment. So I do think it is a type in some sense, but of course, uh, as John is clear in John 3 and Romans 5, the word uh, in Romans type is used. Type is is not, is, when taught in scripture, there's a difference between the type and the anti-type. In Romans 5, it's a clear instance of that with Christ and Adam. Okay, so, um, everlasting burning, everlasting fire in the Old Testament refer to temporal things, and in the New Testament refer to everlasting, uh, literally everlasting things. Uh, that's interesting. Um, you know, I think, so not, 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 not necessarily, no. Or, I, I, mean, I, I wouldn't. One, uh, Paul talks about, says that the lost will undergo everlasting destruction. And he uses these phrases, uh, uh, let me look this up really quick, Second Thessalonians 1. He uses these, phrase, these phrases, um, one moment, uh, flaming fire, dealing out retribution, which a number of commentators have acknowledged uh, appear together in the Old Testament in only one place, and that's Isaiah 66. Uh, verse 15, which says that uh, the Lord will come in a fire and his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and to rebuke his flames with fire. Uh, again, I just want to make sure I understand. You're saying that even though the, the Hebrew word corpses is used in verse 24, it's actually not corpses. Is that right? Or are you saying... Right, that, yeah, that, yeah. That, yeah, yeah. I mean, just like, I mean, it's a, I would say it's a metaphorical interpretation. It's like uh, prophetic imagery, which is not always literal, as you probably recognize. Okay, so I'll finish my question now. So if oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't realize I cut you off. I apologize for that. So, would you, so are you saying, let me make sure I understand very specifically what you're saying here. Are you saying that in the imagery here, what is depicted as corpses, but the proper interpretation is that it's actually referring to living things, living people, or are you saying that, it's, that what's actually depicted here are living people? Um, I would have the New Testament interpret the Old Testament. Revelation has a dad in there. That's, that's, that's not my question. I understand, I understand, I understand the principle of, of progressive revelation and interpretation. My question is, in what, in Isaiah 66 itself, what is depicted? Is it physical corpses, or is it living people? Prophetic imagery is corpses. I, I really right. that. That's, that's, that's my, okay, good. Now, can you point me to anywhere else in, well, let me ask you this. Um, would you argue that Unquenchable fire and undying worms are uh, support for your view, as so many traditionalists do. Uh, uh, I, I would say that um, uh, undying worm, and you're talking about uh, eternal fire, you're talking about the unquenchable. Is that what you're talking about? Just be clear. I'm sorry, I didn't ask you a question, but I just didn't. Is that what you're asking? So here in Isaiah 66:24, it says their worm will not die, their fire will not be quenched, and Jesus says the same thing in Mark 9:48. Um, and most traditionalists will argue that this language of unquenchable fire and undying worm is support for their view, that, that it's a reference to an eternity of suffering, an eternity of undergoing wrath, etc. Is that your position? Uh, yes, but not in every case when unquenchable fire is using the worm not dying, does it? I'm not the well, worm not dying is not used anywhere else, I'm sorry. When unquenchable fire is not always used in reference to eternity of punishment, but I think if you have the New Testament, um, Mark 9 and Matthew 18 interpret that passage, I think it does mean that. So yes. I do hold so in, of that. 
Okay. So in uh, Deuteronomy 28:26 and Jeremiah 7:33, where it talks about your carcasses will be food to all birds of the sky, to the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. Do you think that this indication that these scavengers can't be frightened away is an indication that they'll forever have food to eat? No, because I think that they'll finish their food and then they'll fly out and they fly away. And okay. Now, and, um, now, as, now, as far as unquenchable fire is concerned, um, would you say that in uh, Ezekiel 20, 47 to 48, it says, Behold, I'm about to kindle a fire in you, and it will consume every green tri in, uh, tree in you as well as every dry tree. The blazing flame will not be quenched. And the whole surface from south to north will be burned by it. All flesh will see that I, the Lord, have kindled it, and it shall be not be quenched. We see something similar in uh, Ezekiel 3.2 to say, sorry, in Jeremiah 17.27 to say, I will kindle a fire in the gates of Jerusalem, and it will devour the palaces of Jerusalem and not be quenched. Do, does it refer to, does this mean that things will forever burn, forever, without ever being consumed in these places? Um, I would say when unquenchable fire is used in the Old Testament, it's talking about, accomplishing a specific purpose, namely uh, destroying something, and it will not be put out, as you point out uh, other places. It won't be put out uh, in... In these places purpose, that I've cited, in these places that I've cited, why is it said to be unquenchable? What is the result, or what is the... Oh, yeah, what, what it, is it, the world will accomplish for its purpose, and it will, not, it will not be thwarted. It won't be put out. That, that wasn't my question. My question is, what is the result oh. of they're not being thwarted? Oh, okay, yeah. It's uh, irresistibly consuming. The, uh, cities or whatever you're talking okay. about. Okay, I appreciate that. Um, so much we could talk about. Let's see here. One moment. So, um, you said that there's no evidence that eternal fire means the wrath of God in your rebuttal. I'm not sure what the point of that was because that wasn't my explanation either. And you said that in Luke 16, uh, it's not a parable. I never said it was a parable. I just said, in fact, I said beyond. I said besides the question about whether it was not, uh, whether or not it was a parable. Where does what happens in Luke 16 take place, though? In the intermediate state, as I clearly stated. Great. Okay. Um, you said, let's see here. Um, when the Old Testament says that the, uh, that the Valley of Hinnom would become the Valley of Slaughter, what does that mean? Um, that, that, that was, that, it, you mean in the, in the Old Testament? Jeremiah, I said Old Testament. Jeremiah 7:32. It says uh, that the, the whole days are coming. So it wasn't then when the valley would no longer be called Topheth, or the Valley of the Son of Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. Uh, so they will bury in Topheth because there is oh, no okay. other place. Okay. Yeah. I, I, what, I, I, what does it mean the, that the valley is Okay. Now. One more question, uh, probably because we're, I suspect we're almost out of time. Um, you, you spent a lot of time making this a debate, seemingly anyway, about physicalism and soul sleep. Uh, and since there's no more time for cross-examination, what I'd like to know is mm-hmm. uh, why you think that's so germane to this debate. Because let's say, let, let me put myself in the shoes of a dualist conditionalist, of which there are numerous. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how, why, why have you spent so much time with, the, with physicalism? Um, even though there's so many dualist conditionalists? I can give you a bunch of reasons for that. Um, one is uh, if physical and soul sleep. Okay. okay. Um, that uh, all of the texts you use to talk about bodies being destroyed, um, which, you know, there's that's the majority ah, of your no, case. I understand. I'm glad you answered that because I, I probably don't have much time, so let me pick up on that. So you're saying that the reason why it's relevant, the reason why it's argued so much against physicalism is because it's based on physicalism that all those other verses that talk about the destruction of the body um, only prove my view, assuming physicalism. But isn't it true that in your view, the bodies of the risen lost will live forever in hell? Uh, that, that is accurate. I, I, do, I do hold that view. Um, but Great. I was uh, merely arguing that. Left. Okay, go ahead.
Devin, how much time do we have left? Sorry about that. I would have my mic muted. Um, yeah, that's that's it. You guys will have to stop there uh, if you guys want to have your your cross examination or your closing statements. Um, time the way it is. Yeah, we'll be, uh, it's the, you guys get about uh, seven minutes each uh, because the show ends at eight, but I can extend it for another minute or two. So seven minutes each. Closing statement. Uh, Nate, you're up. Okay, thank you, uh, Devin, and thank you, uh, Chris, for uh, debating me. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man with the Rethinking Health Conference and everything, so appreciate it. Um, and I would like to say in my closing that um, I don't think Chris has established his case at all. I mean, uh, there's a whole host of facts to teach from a conscious torment that I don't think have been adequately responded to. Matthew 25, Revelation 14, Revelation 20. Um, I think Jude 7 and other passages in Jude as well that, that talk about people being reserved forever, uh, unbelievers. We're not supposed um, to introduce new material in our closing statements. What's that? We're not supposed to introduce new material in our closing statements. Oh, okay. I wasn't aware of that uh, provision in the debate. Um, I never made that uh, sort of debate before. I never defined it in there. So if I would, let me continue with my closing statements. Um, so, uh, anyway, so, yeah, and, uh, and we've all seen that Matthew, uh, Mark, Mark 9 teaches that the fire will be, uh, that will be preserved with fire. Be... Chris only has, hello? Yeah, you're there. Go ahead. Okay, how much time do I have left? Just take, uh, take six minutes with the interruptions. It shouldn't take six minutes, uh, left okay, and then thank you. Thank you. seven minutes, yeah? Okay, so um, uh, we have these passages being salted with fire, being preserved with fire, being burned forever and ever, um, and, and that's in connection with the eternal fire in, in Matthew uh, 18. So we have a, a whole host of passages, and what has Chris offered up? I mean, I mean, if you don't hold a physicalism, all you have to establish annihilationism is Matthew 10, and uh, Matthew 10 can be dealt with from, uh, I think, a traditional view, because many times in um, the synoptics we have the demons used to destroy and torment interchangeably. Uh, destroyed can uh, be used in a metaphorical sense. It's being destroyed like the Lakers destroyed the Bulls. If you're a Bulls fan, I apologize. Um, but, uh, you know, there, there's, there's a sort of metaphors you can pick up on, and uh, the terrible passage seems to establish that it's not talking about annihilation. It's talking about hell, which is called the eternal fire, um, which we have evidence from 4th Maccabees 12 that it refers to a fire which torments forever and ever. Um, and... So when we put these passages together, we can see a whole systematic view, and we see that Chris has nothing to establish in terms of the passages he's offered up. He's offered about bodies being destroyed. That doesn't establish annihilationism. Now, it needs to be said, I don't hold that the immaterial soul continues on being tormented, but suppose that Chris's passages were actually correct. This wouldn't establish annihilationism at all. So uh, it was more of a kind of reductio from my standpoint of showing that, hey, you only got one passage, and we have numerous passages that uh, support eternal conscious torment. And uh, so I think also the atonement uh, uh, argument that I gave at the beginning of my opening statement um, it indicates that uh, it's best fit with traditionalism. Uh, Chris has not uh, risen to the challenge of even answering that objection. Um, he's misunderstood my position and has not uh, dealt with it intellectually. Uh, it's clear that Jesus uh, punished the concentration of our wrath um, by uh, taking it for us as a substitute. Um, Whereas in Christmas, he just dies for three days. You know, believers 
believers, you know, they died for 2,000 years and they're not conscious on Christ's view. So what is the relevant difference between the believer dying for 2,000 years and Jesus dying for three days? I, I mean, I just can't make sense out of that. And does it suggest that Matthew 25 refers to, um, you know, that punishment that, that St. Peter has experienced or has an experience if he wasn't alive, has experienced for 2,000 years. I mean, I, I find that um, beyond credulity. So we've seen in, in this debate that the uh, annihilationist view of a substitutionary atonement has not been accounted for. I can account for the exact same punishment which Jesus took in our place, that amount of wrath he took on the cross for us. And this is why I believe this debate to be so important, because it's about the, the, the good news. Because what makes the good news so powerful, so sweet, is the bad news is so bad. I am saved from a eternity as hell, because Jesus took that amount of wrath in sheer pain and utter terror on the cross. And I am so thankful every day because of that. And this is why this really, you know, this is where the rubber hits the road, is that we affect the work of Christ, work of Christ if we hold Christ's view. And on my view, the good news is truly sweet, consistent, it's biblical, and it's, and it's reasonable beyond doubt. So uh, I would say that this is why I'm a traditionalist, first and foremost. I also say the clear verses in Revelation testify to this. And also Hebrews 9, which Chris has not adequately dealt with. You die once on annihilations and you die twice. So that verse has not been accounted for as well. And so we've seen if we use a clear scripture, like Hebrews 9, to interpret these passages, they cannot mean what the annihilationist is teaching. This is why if you hold to Reformed theology, you hold to consistency about it in the New Testament, interpreting the Old and the clear passages, interpreting the unclear, you will find that you cannot be annihilationist. You die once, you don't die twice, is in Chris's view. It contradicts the clear meaning of that text. And if you look at the next verse, it says, Jesus died once. Jesus died once. He doesn't die twice. And so... This is why the spiritual death, second death, as Chris uses as an argument to say that they die twice, using less clear to interpret the more clear. And this is why we should take to be hermeneutically consistent in our schematics and putting together a picture of God and eternal punishment. We should have a clear passage, interpret the unclear passage. We die once, we don't die twice, what Hebrews 9 clearly says. And the atonement of Christ, which is a sinner of the Christian faith, because that's the gospel. And if you mess with that, you mess with the gospel. That's what, that's what Paul says it is. Um, so, in terms, and how am I doing on time, by the way? Well, you're doing good. You got like uh, like a minute and a half. Okay, great. So, with that, with that being said, um, I, I don't think the uh, the objections I gave to annihilationism has been answered. Uh, you don't have the exact same punishment on Chris's view, and soul sleep and physicalism is a part of this debate um, because of the fact that um, if if you hold to an intermediate state of suffering and you see the beast and the false prophets uh, die, and they go to that, that, that place of second death, that's taught in Revelation 19, you're going to hold to my view. They're tormented forever and ever. And if you hold to that being the second death, as I think it is taught in uh, Luke 16, um, and Second uh, Peter, and as well as Jude, when it talks about the intermediate state of suffering. So I think if you put it all together, and you hold the intermediate state, Jesus... Uh, Jesus does not cease to exist. He still lives. He's with the thief in paradise. And you hold to the intermediate state of unbelievers that Chris, you cannot be seen consistently. And in fact, the entire case for annihilationism falls apart. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. God bless. All right. Thank you, Nate. And uh, bring Chris on here. Chris, you there? I am. All right, sir. Take seven minutes. Okay. 
I'll begin, I'll begin by uh, responding to the new evidence that was uh, brought into the debate in the closing arguments. Um, the, the passage in, in being reserved for punishment, uh, yeah, they're reserved now for the punishment awaiting them in the future. There's also a passage in Jude which talks about uh, bonds of darkness, and uh, Job says that he wishes that the day on which he had been born would be darkness. What does he mean by that? That he'd never lived. Salted with fire, it actually doesn't say preserved by fire. Uh, I'm not aware of a translation that uses the word preserved. Um, what it says is that, is that the, uh, right after the passage referring back to Isaiah 66:24, in which corpses are being consumed by fire and by maggots, it says that uh, it talks about being salted with fire. And if you want to check out a, an article at rethinkhale.com called Salted with Fire, uh, you'll see that there's actually a really good argument to be made that he's not talking about preservation at all. He's talking about uh, the act of salting the land of a destroyed city so that nothing will ever grow there again, which is, of course, what we have in Isaiah 34 with the smoke rising forever from the remains of Edom and so forth. Um, now, it's interesting. I also care deeply about the atonement, which is one of the reasons why I'm not a traditionalist. Um, you know, the Bible doesn't say that Jesus bore some vague, you know, reference to uh, concentrated wrath. That's not what it says. It says that he bore the punishment of death, physical death. And, and, you know, the reality is that there are going to be many people who are, who'd never experienced the, the first death, or death at all, in my friend Nate's view. Many. So, he didn't, so there is no, you can't appeal to the first death, uh, when you, when you appeal to Galatians 3 and, and say that Jesus bore the exact punishment that the lost will, because then there are people who will never bear the punishment that he bore on our behalf. The atonement is just annihilated, to use the excuse upon, uh, in my friend Nate's view. And that's why I say, I mean, it's borderline heretical. I, I, I don't say it is heretical because uh, logical implications of a view do not necessarily, are, isn't necessarily the view that one will hold. And I know that my friend Nate deeply cares about the atoning death of Christ, just inconsistent with his view. In my view, on the other hand, Jesus died, de the, he paid the death penalty so that we will live forever and the lost will not. In his view, Jesus died the death penalty for those, many of whom would never have died. It's, it's illogical. It's nonsensical. Now, in my opening and at other times in the debate, I demonstrated that the biblical definition, well, actually, in my opening, I demonstrated the biblical definition of resurrection as a return to biological life, and Nate admitted that in his, in his view, the risen lost uh, will live forever. This is contrary, as I demonstrated, to Genesis 3, in which the tree of life is for the purpose of uh, providing um, physical life. The, uh, it appears in Revelation, in the closing chapters of Revelation, as imagery communicating that only live the, the, law, the saved will physically live forever, which is why the perplexing imagery is interpreted by John and God himself as plainly meaning the second death, uh, which again is contrary to my friend Nate's view. In fact, he claims that Hebrews 9 is supports his view and that nobody dies twice, so he has to de deny um, the inspiration of Hebrews because he believes that people die twice as well. He just arbitrarily determines that the, death, uh, the second death of Revelation is some sort of different death. Well, it's still called death, so in his view, he has to deny Hebrews. I know he doesn't want to admit it, but he has to deny that Hebrews is inspired. I, on the other hand, can simply take it what it says. Uh, we die once and then we face judgment. And Hebrews doesn't say anything there about what will happen following that. But the author of Hebrews does go on to say that the enemies of God will be consumed. Now, I demonstrated that the Bible teaches that the risen lost will be destroyed, meaning they will biologically die. Mark 9:48, cross-referencing Isaiah 66:24, indicates that the lost will be slain and their bodies will be consumed by unquenchable fire and unstoppable scavengers imagery, which nowhere in the Bible supports my friend Nate's view. I demonstrated that uh, the imagery of Revelation is interpreted to plainly refer to the second death. I demonstrated uh, that... Um, 
that Second Thessalonians 1.9's eternal destruction, which harkens back to Isaiah 6.24, means that they will forever die. Uh, all, all of this language is contrary to my, uh, to, to my friend Nate's view. Um, and, and we already talked about the atonement. Again, I'll reiterate, some people for whom Jesus died, in Nate's view, would never have died. Think about that. I'll let that sink in for one moment. Some people, in Nate's view, will never undergo, and the saved would never, some of the saved would never have undergone the punishment that he thinks that Jesus died on their behalf. That's scary. Now, I don't expect you to become convinced of my view immediately. You shouldn't change your mind too hastily. That a lot of things have been said in the course of this debate. You probably have to listen to it several times and read a lot of literature on the topic. I want you to take your time. I want you to study the topic in greater depth, and I want you to read the best that both sides of this debate have to offer. Um, and even after all that, I don't necessarily expect you to change your mind. But what I do expect is that after this debate is over, you'll think differently about evangelicals who share my view of hell. We're not bleeding heart liberals who can't stand the idea of hell. We're not cultists blindly following the lies of self-proclaimed mouthpieces for God. We're conservative evangelicals committed to the supreme authority of Scripture, and it's that commitment to Scripture and to the atoning substitutionary work of Christ that forces us to believe in conditional immortality and annihilationism. If we were consistent substitutionary atonement theorists, we could not hold to my friend's view. Unity in the body of Christ is what drives me. It's what I'm passionate about when it comes to this topic. It's an issue that's too often treated as if it's cause for division, the topic of hell. There are certainly issues worthy of division, essential to the Christian faith, but the nature of hell is not one of them. My hope tonight is that although Nate and I have at times been a little exacerbated, uh, I hope we've been able to model how it is that evangelical Christians who disagree strongly on this topic and its implications can nevertheless treat each other as brothers with charity, love, and respect, enjoying the unity that we have on the basis of our mutual faith in Jesus Christ and our shared commitment to the authority of Scripture. Thank you. All right. Uh, thank you, Chris. Appreciate that. Nate, appreciate you, brother. Thank you. Thank you both. I appreciate both your time invested in this debate. It's been a fantastic, stimulating time uh, talking to you all. I feel the same way. All right. Bye-bye. 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 Do it again sometime. Thanks again, Nate. Chris, appreciate you, brother. Uh, look forward to uh, having you on again in the future. Sure, really quick, can I, can I just encourage people to go to Amazon.com and search for Rethinking Hell and check out the book that we published? It's, it's really good. I think you guys will really be edified by it. Sure, you got a website you want to get out to? Yeah, check out RethinkingHell.com. We've got a lot of articles uh, there, including articles on topics that have been discussed in this debate. You can also find out how to purchase a copy of Rethinking Hell uh, and a number of other things. Uh, you'll be able to find a link to our YouTube channel, which is YouTube.com slash user slash Rethinking Hell, where you can find recordings of our recent Rethinking Hell conference held just this past weekend in the, at the Linear Theological Library in beautiful Houston, Texas. It was uh, an amazing experience, and I encourage everybody to check these resources out. All right. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. And uh, we will see you again down the road. All right. Take care. All right, folks. And uh, join us again this Thursday as we will have Marsha Montenegro on, and we will be uh, we will be looking at the New Age and uh, the occult and exactly how that uh, ties uh, kind of into the culture and how, as Christians, we can respond. Again, if you've not liked us on Facebook, please go to Theology uh, Matters with the Palouse at Facebook. And uh, and uh, thanks again for, for joining us, and uh, until next time, God bless.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.